You are listening to the Awoken Word Podcast. Holy shit, that is the worst Darth Vader impression probably in the history of the world. Uh, Welcome to the Awoken Word Podcast. You are hearing the voice of your host, Anu Drastogi. So that was a terrible opening, but I am ridiculously excited today about our episode. This interview was recorded on September 26th, and it was recorded with a man who is truly a living and breathing legend. Today I have a conversation with Roger Christian. A few of you might know the name, but I'm quite certain almost every single person who will ever hear this episode knows his work. Roger is actually an Academy Award winning set director and filmmaker and designer for film and Roger's greatest claim to fame within a very illustrious career is that he was actually one of the first few people hired on directly by George Lucas to work on Star Wars A New Hope in 1977 and Roger is actually the man who created and designed and built the first few lightsabers R2-D2, C-3PO, the entire cockpit and innards of the Millennium Falcon, and countless other pieces of the Star Wars universe. So this is uh, episode four, and it just worked out that I could say, may the fours be with you, which is a really terrible dad joke, but a good way to kind of ring in this conversation. Roger and I had an extremely expansive conversation So if you are a lover of film, if you are a lover of Star Wars, if you're a filmmaker, if you're a creative, if you're just struggling to try and figure out how do you make that passion come to life, I highly encourage you to take the time and listen to this man speak. He simply is incredible. As I mentioned, this interview is very, very broad sweeping and it covers nearly 70 years of history. You will hear him talk about crossing paths with all of the cinema greats, from George Lucas to Steven Spielberg to Guillermo del Toro to George Miller. You'll hear Roger talk about the who's who of the golden age in cinema, from producers to art directors to set designers to sound mixers. He really does have a passion for the craft of film. If you think about the decades worth of timeline that we talk about in this conversation he remembers some incredibly fine details about specific times and memories and episodes and he gives shout outs and due respect to people in his career in his life in his experiences and I just found that incredible that not only would he remember all these people but that he would work them into his story in such a nuanced way and he really does value the contributions that people have had in his life. After all of these years of incredible success, he is a truly humble and truly gracious man. He is a a rare gem in an era of inflated celebrity and egos in Hollywood. He is just a down-to-earth guy that wants to create good films and loves storytelling. And uh, definitely, if you can, get out and buy his book, Cinema Alchemist. You will see some incredible facts and stories from behind the scenes of films like Star Wars, Aliens. Uh, This man really is part of film royalty. I'm really humbled that I had the chance to spend not even just a few minutes, but a few hours with Roger. 
and I am beside myself in being able to share this conversation with you. So, from a galaxy far, far away, Roger Christian. This podcast is my humble attempt to bring a full grain of sand of goodness to the beach of human experience. Inspiring. This podcast is my love letter to all of you. So we are live here with Roger Christian. Roger, thank you for coming by. Uh, very pleased to be here. I like doing podcasts. So, Roger, where do we begin? You're a filmmaker, you're a legendary Oscar-winning set designer, a director, an author, a father. For the people who very obviously will know your work but may not know the man behind the work, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, that's it's kind of half on purpose that I've kept that way because I like to live an ordinary life, not a celebrity life. Um, and I, I, from a young age, I never saw any value in that. Um, and it restricts you from a lot. So, um, you know, coming through from difficult childhood, you know, I grew up in um, the, right at the end of the second world war my father was i didn't see my father for a couple of years he was away in java and at six months old the front of our house was blown in by a flying bomb wow and they thought i was dead i was covered in red and it was in fact a ketchup bottle had exploded (laughs) you were destined for film then i think probably (laughs) (laughs) i never thought of that but it's true okay um and you know, you, you grew, I grew up at that time with images of hundreds of men all going into bullets and dying, and it just never made sense to me, any of this stuff. I, I, there's always a dilemma, and no one can answer this dilemma, where you, you are, your culture and your humanity are being attacked like it was then. Do you get up and try to fight it? So, you know, when I, as I was growing up, when I got to 17 and 18, there were two times when we were threatened that we were going to have to go in the army. It was going to be a commission. And I'd already worked out how I would escape. I wasn't going to do it. Um, And it was just not for me. But um, growing up at that time, I had kind of a renaissance happened with this grey world that I grew up in. And my escape was King Arthur and Ivanhoe and... um, incredible books that I used to read, Faraway Tree, all sorts of stuff that was firing my imagination. You know, we didn't didn't have television. Right. We had radio that I would listen to and I'd listen to stories. But really it was these books of amazing encounters of heroes, heroes' journeys that really got me. And I got through all of that somehow to... Um, when getting to London as fast as I could, getting out of home, the explosion that happened, and it was Bob Dylan that did it for all of us. Um, It was music Mm -hmm. that's fired up all of my kind of changes. And I was so broke. We used to put up marquees all over the world, all over, sorry, England. 
and earn a huge amounts of money as students. And every day on it, there was one one of our friends had a guitar and he knew every Bob Dylan song that from the first album that came out. So we'd all sit on the back of these trucks and he would play Bob Dylan. And as soon as we got to transport cafes, because that was the way of life on the road, you'd stop and you'd have egg and bacon and chips in a transport right. cafe and they all had a jukebox and on would come Bob Dylan in each one we went to or the House of the Rising Sun. Wow. And um, that fueled us, really, um, to get through. You know, and I, I just, with a father giving me orders to be a doctor, an architect, or a priest, and I was having none of it. And I used to go to Saturday morning cinema, and I didn't know what I wanted to do. I couldn't get a grasp on it. Again, there was no mentorship, nothing. I was in a small very small part of Reading, um, which is a community. It's the capital of Berkshire, without a theatre. We had a private theatre, and I belonged to that. I, I And I acted three times and thought, okay. this isn't for me. And I went behind the scenes, and I thought, this is for me. Right. That kind of fueled it. Um, and funnily enough, I just found it, going through storage, I just found my a leaflet where I... Um, I'd produced and directed in the church. I must have been about 12, the, the Christian story for Easter, which we'd done in the church. So right. <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing. Um, but I was, during the putting up marquees, one day we were in a place called Black Park putting them up and... Um, there was a prison camp, like a concentration camp in the woods. And we thought, what in the hell is this? And I got over there at lunchtime and asked the guys, what is going on? And they said, well, it's a film set. And um, I said, well, it looks so real. And they said, yeah, we have a tramp. A homeless guy comes through every lunchtime and gives us some food. He thinks we're prisoners. And I wow. said, what's this for? And they said, it's for Pinewood Studios. It's right through the woods there. It's a set for a film. That was it. I was under the fence. I couldn't get into Pinewood. We found a hole under the fence, one of my mates and I, and they, for some reason the stage doors were open and they were filming Bond, the first Bond, in the stage. And something wow. like, you know, Destiny Strikes, there's an arrow. That was it that day. The smell and what was going on, and I thought, what is this? I've got to be part of this. And I went to the prop room and there was no one there and I was picking up the gold bars and and realising they were plaster, they were all fake, but this was real, everything. <clears throat> so I thought, right, how do I do this? And then I, you know, agonies of endless writing letters to film studios in England, anyone, I because I knew nobody. Um, one producer from Pinewood wrote back to me and said, look, and I was doing, I was studying art at that time. I got out of school and was in art art school. He said, as you're doing art, you should go in through the art department because that's the, you, you'll find it much easier to get in that way. And um, then I found out that really you needed architecture. It was a whole structure then. Sure. So then blindly I thought, right, and I applied to Oxford School of Architecture and got accepted as long as I had two A-levels. And I had one A-level in art. I didn't have another one. And I got A-level economics in a year somehow studying it and got probably the lowest mark, but it, I got an A-level, the second right. one, and I got into Oxford School of Architecture, and I was there for two years. And um, 
I was an experiment alongside about six others that they decided that architecture was floundering so they should take more arty students in. So we were the experiments. And the head of the school, wonderful man, Reginald Cave, became a very dear friend. And um, I got my diploma, which is the intermediate diploma, and he said, Roger, I think you should go and do what you really love and go and do what you really want to do now because you're going to be bored stiff. The next two years are going to be concrete mixes and structures and steel and all this stuff. And it was a huge decision for me because finally my father was okay. He's going to Mm -hmm. be an architect. And I walked away. You know, I had no money. There was some certainty finally for him. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I walked away and I got a job in London. I had no money. I used to, I found a way on the train whereby the, the ticket collector would come down halfway through. So I'd start at the front and I'd run to the back. He started at the back and I could avoid paying the fares. And wow. I was unpacking dresses in London and uh, CNA's, this famous old store. And I'd applied and applied. And two things. One, one, one thing at art school, which is actually important, I, a mate of mine, he bought, I don't know, for 10 shillings, he bought this huge Mark Seven Jaguar. And he and I um, and two girlfriends went to London to see movies. And we went to see Dr. Trivago and a man and a woman. <clears throat> so I'd had, when I was young, I, I'd had an out-of-body experience i'd gone out the window and i pulled myself back i did, it was like a strange thing that happened to how me. old were you then i must have been about seven or eight okay. we had crystal radios where you had a crystal with a hair and you you could twiddle the hair and you could get a bit of music wow and uh it was during that that happened and i i didn't think any more about it i was in this cinema it's the top cinema in Leicester Square with these beautiful velvet seats. And this film, I I went out of my body. I went up into the cinema, the music, and this film just blew me away. And then we went to see a man and a woman, Claude Lelouch, and he made this film. It was a jazz soundtrack, and it was Louis Trantignon in, in south of France driving in a Mustang all the way to Paris with a woman. And it was new cinema. He used to do commercials, and it was right. it's amazingly visual and everything. We had huge rows outside, people saying, oh, this is commercials, oh, it's rubbish. And I'm going, no, it's not, it's a new art form. I kind of started my career. But that did it. That was it. I didn't care. I was going into this industry. And... Um, <clears throat> I sold my car. I was so broke. I had to hitch thumb a lift home. The guy who picked me up was an architect who took me under his wing, took me all the way home and said, look, one of my architects in my business worked on Cleopatra because they it was so big, this film, they were pulling in anyone they could this find. This is some other level of serendipity. Yeah. That the one guy that decides yeah. to give you a lift. <clears throat> yeah. Wow. Okay. This is, you know, it's like a, a painting, dot painting that fills in. And mm-hmm. um, he he said, call me in three days. I called him. He said, I've arranged, he's arranged an interview for you at Elstree Studios with this man called Charlie Bishop. And I drove in this, uh, um, I, I think I borrowed a car from somebody. I drove there, went in. Charlie was there. 
wonderful human being, I have to say. And Charlie looked at all my folder of work. By then I got architecture and I got art school and all this stuff. And um, he... <laughs> He said, well, I'm just finishing um, Department S. It's a huge TV series. He said, I can't take you on. I would do. Right. And if I do another series, I will take you on. I can't now, but I'll introduce. And he said, I'm, I'm making a call now. I'll come back in a minute. And he made a call to Shepperton and said, I've arranged an appointment for you. Then talking to Charlie, it came out he was on. Dr. Zhivago, he was the art director responsible for this amazing ice palace, that whole sequence. Mm -hmm. It was so big, they put him in charge. The man he went sent me to see was John Box, who designed Dr. Zhivago, Lawrence of Arabia, <clears throat> one of the best designers ever, ever. Were so you, I go to see. Were huh? you pinching yourself at this point, thinking, "How did I end up here?" <clears throat> I was so determined. I didn't even think. I just thought, "I got to get a job. I got to get a job." I was so broke, and um, <clears throat> I was with a girlfriend and going through hell. You know the whole thing. And, and as an aside, the th music and this will be come up, I guess, later has got me through. Leonard Cohen has got me through my life. Everything, every album he brought out exactly echoed where I was at the time and his words and everything. So his first album, I played till I wore out my LP at that time. Wow. And that was through torturous relationships, but because he's very good at that. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so John Box, uh, and this is the crunch of this whole story. He looked at all my hot folder and he said, look, I'm going to give you a job if you're willing to make the tea. And I said, I'll do anything, tea and coffee. And he said, because it's a big art department. I don't know when we'll start. You have to call me every week. And when I get greenlit, and it was Oliver, the, the film version of Oliver, the oh, big okay. one. Right. And he closed up my folder and he said, look, I'm going to give you a piece of advice. Okay, this is the film industry. You're in the desert. There's an aeroplane next to you, and you've got a bottle of green ink in your pocket and this cloud of dust, and here's the director and the producer, and they're going, wow, this is fantastic, but we need it read by tomorrow morning. He said, you either do it or you talk your way out of it with an alternative on the spot. That's the film industry. Mm. And I put that in the book, and these words have lasted, these these. And I saw John much later in life. I, I adored him. He was the most humble. He couldn't really paint. The rest of the art department, they were all like in suits and ties. I came with hair down here and boots. And I'm watching Antonioni and Zeffirelli and Pasolini and, and Bergman was one of my favorites. Right. I was told, you know, stop all this. This is all. It's nothing to do with what you're doing now. You come and play gin with us on a Sunday. We play cards and drink and... You're in a business now and get a haircut, get a suit. And I was having none of it. Right. And John protected me all the way through. And they used to laugh at him. He'd do a painting. It would take him six weeks. But all the colors were there and it was not very good. They'd all laugh at him. And I never did. I understood what he was doing. And he really pissed them all off one day. He got, he got me in. I had a suede jacket and some jeans and boots. And he said, these are the colours, exactly what Roger's drawing. This is what I want you to do for the set. This one of the sets on Oliver. And I could see them all grimacing. It's like, 
And I, so I worked my way up by making tea, like endlessly coffees, teas. And then I thought, you know, and I, I got, John knew that I could draw. And I used to give a ride home because he didn't have a car to the construction manager who kind of took me under his wing. And he knew that I could draw. Right. So I took a gamble. I thought, you know what? And I started making worse and worse tea and worse coffee. And I could see them grimace as I'd leave the room like this. And I thought I'd either get fired or promoted. And I got promoted onto the drawing board and they got somebody else to make the tea. <laughs> so <laughs> that's how it happened. And I'd applied for a job as well at Rediffusion Television because they were turning into ITN and they only had six months to go. And... I got an offer at the end of Oliver as it was finishing, and I thought, what am I going to do now? And Charlie Bishop wasn't starting another series then for another six months, he said. And I got this offer from television, and I went for the interview, and I got the job. And back in Oliver, the entire argument was telling me, that's it, you're dead. You work in television, poof, you'll never work in film again. Mm -hmm. You know, Then it was such an inferior thing. Sure, I took the job. Within four weeks with the designer, we were doing a huge period film on location. Then they did sets live, you know, you built all the sets in three studios right. and they went round with cameras. And he said, I've got to get back and get the sets ready. You're on your own. Can you look after the director and keep this going? I was the decorator, the designer on this huge Throwing series. The fire. And I loved it. Yeah. And I survived. So... I thought, wow, I'm glad I took that decision. <laughs> and then Charlie offered me Randon Hopkirk, um, which was a series starting, which has become a huge cult classic now. And that um, I started on the drawing board, and Charlie knew I hated it, drawing up sets all day, stuck in an office, you know. And uh, the pressure on those was horrendous. We were doing, I think, 10-day turnarounds on any number of sets and stuff. And the set decorator had a nervous breakdown. He couldn't take it and went inside. And they didn't think he was going to come out. And I designed and drawn up a set for a crazy artist. And I got called down to the floor. And they said, look, you drew this set up do you want to dress it because he's gone and we need this to come up and you might as well have a go at it because you seem to have an idea of what you thought it should be. So I right. was like, wow, I did it. Got this mad set. It was... <laughs> and I went back on the drawing board. Then I got a call to the stage when they'd moved on, the director. And I go down to the stage and I thought, that's it. Now I'm really going to be fired. Right. And the director, Cyril Franco, was, you know, he was the biggest one of all those. He looked at me and he said, well, this is the best set we've ever had on this series. And the producer was there, everybody. And they said, do you want to set decorate from now on? And again, it was two seconds to say yes. So right. that's how it leapfrogged me from 20 years on a drawing board, which was the usual way through on an art department to end up when you're older as a designer, um, and by then everything's knocked out of you. But it sounds like, <clears throat> I mean, everyone's trajectory is going to be unique, but it sounds like you took risks along the way that perhaps some other people didn't, and you, know, you, you were thrown into the fire, as it were, right? Some of this is, is only learned when you're really right in there. Yes. 
Totally, yeah. I was. I don't know whether it was just blind ambition at the stage, or whether it was, you know. But it 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 all relates to stuff that goes on now in life and everything. There are forces at work somehow that, and I, I've always thought this. You know, the, your path, and this is what religion teaches you, that <clears throat> if you, well, Jane Roberts, who who was um, a very prolific writer in the 80s, was the first one to channel. And she was channeling an entity called Seth, and she was very serious. And the husband noticed that she would go off and all this stuff, and he started writing it down. And then he they got this message that this Seth was trying to write a book through her. And she wrote a book that was one of the giants of the movement in the 80s called The Nature of Personal Reality and it was written by it was channeled she was a vehicle yeah and in that he says you know you human beings you should learn you should cut your heads off because your mind is completely ruins your path you have to open your instinct which is opening your heart so my advice is cut your heads off (laughs) (laughs) and That's metaphorical, but it's true. So all of our, you know, whatever you do, you have to uncover, you know, and the, and the biggest problem in the world is fear. And I've gone through this with so many people, and I, I told my aunt at 91 when she was always afraid of something happening and fear and fire, and I said to her, fear doesn't exist. And she said, what do you mean? And I said, in the moment, it's the imagination of what might happen to you whether it's a tiger, right. it's not the tiger, it's, oh, he's going to bite me and kill me. It's not the fire, it's that I'll get burned. It doesn't exist. Fear doesn't actually exist in the moment that you're standing. It's what your mind imagines. Right. And yeah. so, yeah. Um, <clears throat> you know, you have to try to get rid of fear and then you can kind of go on a path of trying to do things you know and also you know it took me even to now to realize there is no failure whatever you do whatever happens it's a learning curve if you approach it that way but people very easily get disinterested they get disheartened and they get put down and unfortunately more and more now and the problem with social media everything is the negative has taken over Right, And it's the worst. I mean, for us filmmakers, it's the bane of our existence because every little worm all over the world living in fear in their little basements come out with an opinion now, and those opinions actually influence what is going on. And they're all negative. It's very rare you get people coming out saying, wow, this is good, or this is interesting. may have faults, but this is interesting. Right. So... So for those who, who don't yet already know, you, you are really the man behind the lightsaber, arguably the most well-known movie, yes, become the, it's movie now, prop or even just um, yeah. you know, fictional weapon in history. You, know, you, you obviously were uh, you know, <clears throat> hand-to-hand in, in creating, or I, I, perhaps I'm not sure you actually created C-3PO and R2-D2 and many of the other yeah. elements within Star Wars. And when I first met you and realizing that you, in fact, were the man that had created this, I didn't really know what to, what to do with that. That's, you know, it was quite incredible. But if, from what I understand, you were one of the first three 
folks that you know George Lucas had brought on when he was filming yes. A New Hope. This incredible journey that you had up until that point, what was the day that you actually got a call or how did this kind of play out before you ended up on this new saga? Well, the, the whole story I've told you before actually relates heavily to this because <clears throat> I was actually, I'd finished a film in, in England and it was, I remember it was Wimbledon and it was snowing and it was horrible. And I got a call from 20th Century Fox saying, are you free? Would you go, John Barry is doing a film and my one of my mates I'd partnered with as an art director all the way through, he did construction, I did the the design set dressing and all of that side of it, Les Dilly, he was on this film and he'd suggested me. The film was out of control in its day. It was um, Lucky Lady and it had grown into this monster for Fox. And there was only three in the art department handling. There were 52 boats, period film, fighting on an ocean. I mean, just in one element wow. of the film. And um, so I got a call and said... Uh, would you be prepared to get on a plane to Mexico? <laughs> and I didn't immediately jump out of my chair because then they'd got, you know, you have to do a negotiation for your salary. So I sure. said, yeah, yeah, where is it? And they say, Wymus. Yeah, you will never have heard of it. And I said, no, I've been to Wymus. I went, I got a cheap ticket once with a mate of mine and we went to America on a 21-day ticket that we got for £70 and we could go anywhere. And we ended up in San Diego. We went down on a bus down to Mexico and we ended up in Weimar, staying on a beach for three days. And uh, so I said, no, I've been there, which flummoxed him. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, I said, sure. So I was on a plane three days later reading this script, Lucky Lady, and it was one of the best scripts I've ever read. It was phenomenal. Gloria Willard Hike wrote it. They were friends of Lucas's. They helped him develop some of the characters in Star Wars without credit. And um, so I arrived and I was immediately put dressing with John. And John, like John Box, John Barry was like, I don't know, hugely influential in my life and just the most wonderful man and talented, my goodness. So we got stuck in. Parallel to this, the studios in America had all lost their audiences and they'd all decided, let's get a young filmmaker in the studio. So Universal got Spielberg. Um, I think it was one of the others got Coppola. 20th Century Fox decided on George Lucas because he'd made American Graffiti and had made a lot of money. George worked into Alan Ladd with his worst nightmare. Like, I've got this children's fantasy set in space. And space films were dead. There was no box office. Literature was dead. It was a few of us read it, but not many. And there was no box office. But Han and Ladd kind of stuck with it. And they analyzed the film that it would make $12 million. And in those days, they would divide it by three. And so they told him, if you can make this film for $4 million, we'll do it. Okay. And... So 20th Century Fox London, Peter Beale and Sandy Liebertson said, we're half the price of America. And the, the budget Gary Kurtz had done was $8 million. So they said, we can do it for four. Oh, OK. And so Gloria and Willard Hike had heard all of this and said, George, you should go and meet John Barry because the sets they're doing, which was a 1920s rum running, we were converting Mexican buildings into old 
rum running places in America and everything. Okay. It was like a western. It was all dusty. It was beautiful. And and John was doing nightclubs because uh, Lisa Minnelli was a nightclub singer in it. So he built this amazing nightclub that she was in. And it was real. Everything was very real. It wasn't like fantasy. So I'm dressing a salt factory with shoveling salt with my guys and uh, a car arrived and out gets George and, and Gary Kurtz and they come and look and he was amazed that this was a set. It wasn't real because it looked so real. And George, it's his way, he got a shovel and he was helping me shovel salt as we were talking and he said, I'm going to make this science fiction film. And that's when this conversation erupted over, you know, I said, I, I, I haven't identified with a science fiction film so far because they don't look real. And he said, I've, that's my mantra. I want to mm -hmm. do something that not one prop stands out, nothing. I'm going to make it like a space western. He went, and then we had dinner that night with him, John Barry and I, and Les was away, and the other art director, Norman Reynolds. And then towards the end of Lucky Lady, and there's a... I got paratyphoid, three of us did. I, I was dying in hospital. I was on the point of death. I was weighing eight stone and um, determined to get out of this. <laughs> there was a poster of Scotland on the wall. I don't know why, in this tiny clinic. And I thought, you know what? I'm not going to die in Mexico. This is not where there's some lies. more serendipity here now in this in this more. hospital. Wow. Yeah, and there's actually I'll, I'll come to that later. But w what this happened, and um, I just thought I'm I'm getting out of this, and I did. Got to America, and then John Barry called and said, "Can we meet in um, Alice's restaurant, which is based on Woody Guthrie's song?" Okay. And it was very famous. It's gone now. It was on the end of a pier. And they had a very famous drink called a B-52, and it was in honour of um, Guthrie. He said, let's have lunch there, and we were offered Star Wars. And he said, you've just got to be back on August the 13th if you're going to stay here. And I said, yeah, because the Rolling Stones are playing, I'm going. Sure, and, yeah. And a few things in L.A. And by then it was like fantasy land for us to be in L.A. I right. mean, it was just like, you know, the music was just incredible, everything going on. So we turned up. Um, Les, myself, John Barry, the production coordinator, Robert Watts, and that was it, and George and Gary. So they hired a tiny studio. Fox hadn't greenlit this film. They weren't giving the go-ahead. They wanted the budget down that Gary was doing. Okay. We spent four months in a tiny studio, just the five of us, and I read the script and thought, how much money have we got? And it was like, <laughs> I think I had $200,000. And, I, you know, it was, there were robots and guns and weapons and, yeah. and vehicles. This, this is as, as large scale as yeah. one could imagine. <clears throat> and so what relates to everything I've been telling you so far is I didn't say because all of the others would have said no you can't make this film, it's not going to work. And I thought, you know what, there's a way of doing this. And I, um, we realised that the storytellers, and he took it from Kurosawa, who, were, who was our my mentor, George's mentor, Coppola's mentor, at that time in history and film, any filmmaker you ask, Kurosawa was their mentor. I studied right. him, I watched him and everything. And the two robots are from Forbidden Fortress. They're the two squabbling peasants. And they are the storytellers. They're minor characters. So George 
converted them to robots. They're squabbling two characters, but they're the storytellers. And we realized C-3PO could be made because they did it in Metropolis. And we thought, we can do it better than that. Sure. R2-D2, whatever the special effects guy was promising, we knew radio control was really primitive. It didn't work very well. So we had to build one. So we made a... They found Kenny Baker, who was three foot eight, who was the only one... Because there were six paintings by Ralph Macquarie, and those were... He's the unsung hero of Star Wars. There was Star Wars in these paintings. And he's going to be a major part of my documentary. Um because he's so shy there's not you can you can google him you can look there's not one piece of film on Ralph Macquarie anywhere nothing he was so shy and retiring silent hero silent sorts. but um <clears throat> so we made a wooden one and I went off on my own and thought you know what if I take real guns because I could rent them for nothing and stick bits on them I'll, I'll, and I made the blaster out of a sterling and I made um Han Solo's gun because he said oh it's like a western hero I didn't tell anyone I just went and did it then called John Barry and said, you better call George here. And again, it was another moment. I thought, I'm going to be fired now or I'm on the right track because I could afford to rent all these guns and make it. So basically every time your instinct's telling you you might be fired, yeah. you're on the right track. Yeah. That's the common denominator okay. here. And I really thought that. I thought, this is it. So George came over and just loved it. And he could fire the Sterling. It would get flame out the end and smoke. And it was heavy. You know, it was a gun. There weren't actors pretending, going boop, boop. And he stayed with me, and we made Princess Leia's gun. He stuck it, super glue with me, with bits. That led to the whole thing of Star Wars. And, you know, and again, I, I had to, at one point, say, I can't afford to make anything for dressing. I can't do it. But if I get aeroplane crap, scrap and, and calculators, whatever I can get in scrap, I could dress the sets and I could make it look real, like a submarine. That <clears throat> process when, here's a problem, we need to create this set, and you know you've got a limited budget. At what point was it just a, an intuitive... I know I can use scrap parts from airplanes and calculators and electronics, or was there a process that you went through to arrive at that? Like, was it just a moment of inspiration that led to that? It was a kind of moment of inspiration. I, I had, again, I, I had a, a Mustang in London, which was a ridiculous car for London, but sure. I, I, at that Even point, today, loved America, yeah. and I had a convertible Mustang that I would drive around in, and I had the doors playing nonstop on my thing fueling my and it was actually driving with the doors playing I thought you know what this is what I could do and I analyzed it afterwards when I was a kid my dinky toys my model cars I used to take out into the garden and make real crashes or put them and I'd paint them down and try to make it look real and photograph I must have been seven or eight years old so there was something instinctively that led me into that and I looked at Thomas the tank engine I had the original books and I, I realized this when I was reading to my elder son, Thomas. The illustrations are beautiful by the Reverend Shepherd, and they were like night. You see a train and the glow onto the rails and stuff. They were, there's a lot of things that led my vision towards this kind of reality, not the fantasy area, but fantasy but real. There's a lot of things that added up to it. Um and I think, you know, <laughs> I made all the guns like that. 
Fox, uh, we got R2-D2 working. And again, part of R2-D2, we built a wooden one. Bill Harmon, the carpenter, said, Roger, I can't make the top. What are we going to do? And he had plywood at home he brought in. We had no money. We made a Luke's Light Landspeeder with Bill's wheelbarrow wheels, the first one. There's pictures of the very first one with bits of polystyrene and wood. We had no money. They couldn't give us anything. We were building stuff like this. It's amazing that you say that because when I think about looking at any of these these vehicles or these these blasters, any of these elements in Star Wars, and I remember watching this as a kid and even looking back at it today, and it felt real yeah. and it felt cobbled together and it felt like these people on this fictional distant planet are having to be resourceful and just pull together whatever they can. Yeah. And that came through on the screen and it felt exactly the way that you're describing you went about making it. Yeah, and that was, you know, even the airline containers, they heat food in. I bought masses of those, and I thought, you know, if you're living on a distant planet, everything's brought in because they had nothing. They had water makers, so they would fit. the the Everything was kind of thought out. Um, and the airplane scrap, you know, I went around... I went around airfields in Britain and I didn't know what I was doing. Obviously, this was pure instinct. No one had ever done this before. And I, I found mountains of aeroplane junk, jet engines on the airfields and no one wanted it. No one wanted it at the time. I could buy half an airplane for £50. So, and it, it, we, we, you know, this, it, we became friends with George. We were all the same age. We used to watch films like on 60mm projections in, in Lee Studios together at night and right. stuff. So we became friends and um, it's it's curious. Little tiny things, but I put it in the book, um, that the first lunch when George arrived in London, I said, let's not go to one of these usual restaurants. Let's go to this one in Portobello Road and she'd collected stuff from Morocco and all over the place, and it was all in rooms, and you sat on sofas and everything. We took George there, and it connected. That became his favourite place. We wanted to go and eat there. And I think, again, if we started a Sif restaurant, you know, with white tablecloths, which it was then, and knife and fork, and you're sitting stiffly, I think everything added up to comfort for him. And... Um, I, I, with a wooden R2-D2, and it, the process started then because then I thought, you know, we've got to put some stuff like Ralph did. So I went to a, a place I knew I could rent bits of old army machinery and all sorts of stuff, and I found the aeroplane nozzles from a, when you turn it and you get air in the aeroplane okay. from an old, I think it's a Dakota. I bought those and stuck them in. They're still there on R2-D2. That's his nozzles. They're still there. That's right. what they are. And I bought other bits stuck on. Bill said, I can't make this little arms on the front I carved those at home with a pen knife at night and stuck those on so I got the idea these scrap bits are working they're giving him a personality and um, plus when I looked at it I thought I can afford it and when I bought all this well we moved into EMI studios and here here's how you have to be very strong in your belief because I moved in they said Let's lay out everything you've done so far, all the guns and the weapons, everything that you've got. You know, I had C-3PO's, I had Chewbacca's. He had a gun in Ralph Macquarie's, and right. I found this bowcaster with the balls on the end, like a kind of crossbow gun, and I loved it. And I showed George, and he changed the script. He put sure. that in there. All of this was laid out. Down comes 
the very traditional prop master and the first AD and all the, they were all super serious. They looked at it. He picked up my Sterling and threw it across the table at me and said, this is shit. Sorry to use the word. He said, we, you're doing an American science fiction film. Don't you understand? And he went off to get me fired. And I thought, you know what, <laughs> it's going to be war. And it was throughout against George. The whole crew hated him. They, you know, it's coming out now. The DP was the worst. He led a whole revolution against George to the point where George, there was a meeting to fire him off his own film. And I stuck by George's side. But the big property master who was in charge of everything, Frank Bruton, dear, dear man, took me under his wing and he was kind of, well, he, he was prop master for Stanley Kubrick, for David Lee, and I mean, giant films, and his job was to get everything to Tunisia. We were starting shooting there in trucks across five countries, so there was a huge pressure on us to right. get this stuff ready. And any science fiction film has a year preparation. Fox greenlit this film on January the 5th. We were shooting at the end of March. Wow. In that Tunisia. insane. It's insane. I never had a day off or hours. I loved it, every minute of it. I was it first time in my element and I was exhausted. Yeah, I did takeaways on the home, driving home every night. I but couldn't it sounds even like your cook. entire life had been leading up to that very Everything moment. led to this, to this film and uh, George. And um, <clears throat> the first day, because Frank Bruton said, what do, you, what, what do you want me to do, boy? He called me boy. And... Uh, <laughs> I said, first of all, strip everything out of the prop rooms. None of this where curtains hang and tables, all of this, pictures, everything out, clean it. So he did. And then no one understood what I was doing. And then this, it must have been a 16-wheel low loader backed in <laughs> with aeroplane junk. And there were aeroplane engines, whole jet engines on it, everything. I'm standing there. Frank had come down to watch. He's standing next to me. He never looked at me. I just heard him say, you know, you're mad, boy. And it kind of summed it up. <laughs> but this is how wonderful Frank was. Five minutes later, he said, okay, boy, in my office, tease on, you tell me what you need. And I said, Frank, I need to teach the boys how to strip things down because you can't take one bit of scrap metal and stick it on a wall. You have to have patterns you have sure. to have like an aeroplane or a submarine has three in case one fails i said i have to do it like that i want it all broken down so we need toolboxes okay boy tomorrow it'll all be organized and it was and i taught them how to break it down and then everyone thought i was mad but and i was crossing my fingers honestly we, we did um, millennium falcon cockpit first and the hold area where the chess game was and they ate up the scrap i was buying more and more and my buyer was buying me pipe that you could buy PVC drain pipe, thin water pipe, up to about two foot diameter. I had, I had a whole area where it was all standing, and I could take it, put it for pipes, and okay. a, a, a telephone exchange was closing. He bought the lot, my buyer, for nothing, I, a few pounds. They said, no, get it out of here. He bought everything. It was all valuable pickings to us, and I had a... I never knew what I would need, so anything interesting went in my office. I got so much junk that I had to move to the next office next door. <laughs> and I had 
acres and acres of super glue that I would use, and I was sticking things together. Right. <clears throat> so every prop was made like that. The lightsaber it drove me mad to find that. I, 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 Luke's binoculars were needed in Tunisia, and I'd got two cameras and another still camera um, in junk and stuck them together and I thought this is interesting and then I put on a, a flip thing on the back and stuck right. that on it and I thought you know what I need two lenses to go on the front and I they were pressuring me for stuff for Tunisia and they wanted the lightsaber and I hadn't found anything that I thought I knew then because I knew Arthur I knew this was Excalibur of a science fiction age I knew this would be the kind of thing that stood out in this film so I couldn't find anything the special effects boys made terrible torches that was this something that you would sketch out first <clears throat> and then figure out how to assemble or was this let's try you know through trial and error and figure mostly out what works. try and error I did sketch out and they're in the big there's a big Star Wars blueprint book they, they found my <laughs> rough sketches of the binoculars okay and i i sketched those out thinking how can i do this but then when i found the camera parts i just said oh i know it was all instinct everything right. was instinct actually and i went to the photographic store where we got all our equipment from rented or bought and got two lenses and i just again out of instinct i said to uh um ron french who was the um head of the he owned it brunnings do you have anything unusual like cameras or flash or something that I could look at? And he pointed me to these boxes that he said, they haven't been looked at, I don't know, 10 years. They're all covered in dust. They're under the shelf there. Go and have a look. And the first one I pulled out, I opened it, and there were the Graflexes. There was five of them, and it was literally finding the Holy Grail. It was a moment in my life that probably stood out more than anything. And there it was, and I thought... I don't have to do anything to this. And I raced in my car to EMI Studios, stuck the T-strip from the blaster around it, stuck, mm. I was taking, stripping down calculators, took that, put it in, in a clip, because I didn't think it should have a clip. And that was it. George came and looked at it and just loved it. And we put a D-ring on the end. And that became what it is today as corny as it sounds it sounds like the force has been with you through through all of this i wonder yeah i mean for, for people listening right now there is a terrible chinese manufactured replica that we probably got for 10 bucks at toys r us of a lightsaber here sitting on the table and i i wonder roger when you when you see this and you think about how ubiquitous and pervasive everything about Star Wars has become, but not just the film and, and the story, but the pieces of art and machines that you've created. And you see this everywhere. I mean, I, you see this at schools when you go shopping for toys. How do you feel when you see this now? It's, it's, a, it's, um, it's something I'm, I'm, I think I explained to you. I'm trying to, we're in the process of making a documentary called Behind the Force. And, um, a lot of it is my story because now, you know, Kurosawa was our mentor. Now, every single person I've met, film director, whoever, anyone I ask, do you remember the first time you saw Star Wars? Um, everybody says it changed my life. And so I thought, you know what, there's, there's a story to be told here that is much bigger than just the film. And also... 
Of course, now it's third generation and going into fourth generation, all mm -hmm. they see is these big blockbusters. Well, this started with a group of myself, the John Barry, who's died young. So I'm the only one from the beginning to the end who was at the heart of it all and did all this stuff. John Barry, the designer, died on Empire Strikes Back very young. And John Dykstra invented motion control. It didn't exist wow. with no money to get this made. And it enabled George to create those early sequences. Ben Burt. And it interests me about Ben, not to say I did this on Star Wars, but why did Ben, when he was chosen to do sound, not get his keyboard out and start doing spacey sounds? No, he went off and recorded pigs and bears and animals and played them backwards. And he started making organic sounds mm -hmm. for the first time. And the big hero, as I said, is Ralph McQuarrie, you know, who who George hired right when he was writing the script and who illustrated for George what was in his mind. And there's incredible stories. A friend of mine has inherited his legacy. Ralph taught him to paint, and he he's now does the cards if they need them in Ralph's style. He has his paintbrushes in his Photoshop. Um, and so... Um, Ralph Macquarie and I guess myself are the dominant parts of this whole documentary and I, I started to you know to think about this it's true it's everywhere on the planet this thing and, and that was when I realized having done a lot of thought about this that George created a perfect myth mm -hmm. and for the cinema age which is the age we're living in now and you know you look at the myths of the past and they're not quite they don't quite work a lot of them they're not um they're not solid stories and george had joseph campbell the great um mythologist the the only one really who's ever spent his life studying myth and legend and his book hero with a thousand faces so he mentored george lucas through mm -hmm. And there were contributions from other people, Gary Kurtz and people, that were helping with this underpinning of a, what George is great at. He's r doing a surfing ride on the surface that is a great story of good versus evil and a few people. There weren't many characters in the first Star Wars, so you got to connect with them and emotionally um, go on the ride with them right, but right. under the surface are all the keys of mythology that get to your subconscious yeah this is something that we were talking about earlier and I think you and I've had very brief chats at points about this but this idea of myth this idea of story and there's some things that you've said that really I think struck a chord because in many ways Star Wars is a true myth but it's also a modern myth. And modern not just in the sense that it's set in space and it uses blasters and lasers, but modern in that it's very humanist in some ways, despite the fact there's all these aliens in the mix. But you have Princess Leia, as you, you were mentioning earlier, and she's the real first female character that yes. is not just sitting in the corner quiet as ornamentation, but as a real pivotal character who's strong and fierce and leading rebellion. You have this idea of difference between people and alien races and distance. You have a multitude of characters. You have black characters in a time where Hollywood may not have featured many of those faces. And in all of that, it's very modern and humanist in that sense. And 
I, I've just started reading uh, *Sapiens* by uh, uh, Yuval Noah Harari, and this idea of storytelling has been really uh, critical for me. I think because at the end of the day, the one thing that's kept us going as a civilization and why we've managed to propagate across the planet is because we tell each other stories and we find meaning in those stories. And it's just really interesting, you know, that *Star Wars* is is perhaps a perfect example of that. Yeah, and I, you know, and I think. The, the, the time it was made, it couldn't happen now. George coming in with the story, and because it was made at such a low budget that it, he was able to tell and make the film he wanted to make, it wouldn't happen any other. It would have been sanitized, and and you know the insurance of the big studios to right. make everything work. It has to make a profit. George's, you know, no one believed in it. I mean, you know, this famous this. You know the meeting where George was going to be fired, and they were going to can the movie after they saw the first rough cut, and and him showing that rough cut to five of his most trusted friends, and they all were pretty negative about it, except for Spielberg, who said, "There's something here, George. You've got to get this finished. I can see it. There's something here," and against all odds, it got made. Um, and myth and storytelling are the most fundamental things for human beings because there are keys. And as you said, you know, when you look at Luke Skywalker, he was brought up by his uncle and aunt. He wasn't, he didn't have a mother and father, and that relates to people. There's the father in Darth Vader. This is coming about this evil kind of the fight, which is Oedipal and stuff, whereby mm-hmm. he chose to go the bad side and Luke chose to say the good side. This is the dilemma that faces every single human being. How, am I going to grow up as righteous and do the right thing or do I turn the other way? Right. And um, I think it's, 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 it's fundamental. And, you know, I was saying earlier, you know, I look at America and I look at it as a, it, it, it's, it's a spiritual-less country at the moment. It's gone. Most of that belief is pockets of it. But in general, it's, you know, I don't like making general assertions, but religions are kind of losing their ground except for the TV evangelistics and stuff, which are using different mediums, but no one really believes those very much. Star Wars has given America and the world something to believe in and to hang on to, and there's a reason why all this is. So I'm, you know, I'm very um, proud to be associated, and one of the few, George Lucas told me in front of the producer, there were only five or six people stood by his side on making Star Wars and I was one of them and I did against all odds I mean the rest of the crew were were really against us and I just took my own path and said no we're going to get this made and I think when I wrote Cinema Alchemist that was my primary thing and the last line in there's a book says do not let anyone tell you you can't you can um, and that means mm. that you're finding your way. And it's not, you know, oh, how do I win an Oscar? Or, wow, how do I get a hit film? That doesn't happen. Right. It doesn't matter if, you, if your passion is accounting and you want to be an accountant, follow it and do it. Follow whatever it is. It doesn't matter, you know. It's, right. it's all, we're all struggling and surviving. But 
you know, one day when I was working in America, I was making my first film and going through hell with a producer and we were shooting in a, um, a hospital and I went in and thanked the nurse in charge and I said, you know, really, you're doing the real work here and I apologise for the disturbance. She said, Roger, what you're doing is equally important. You give hope, you give a, a two hours in a cinema to people. It's a huge, huge thing in Absolutely. their lives. So don't ever discount that. Um, and that, again, was a kind of lesson to me. I thought, yes, um, th this is true. So what's got lost is writing. Hollywood doesn't encourage writing. It encourages the process whereby there'll be three or ten writers to get something working in a formula to make money. The assembly and line. Assembly line. And it's okay. You know, we all love these huge blockbusters and they come out and you go to the cinema and you get blasted by sound and vision and all of this stuff. But you come out and you wait for the next one. When you look at Star Wars, when you look at Alien, when you look at independent films they go inside they go deep into your subconscious and you think about them and they stay with you and so the process of originality has to be encouraged and has to be um, somehow um you know, and it gets through. There are, you know, there's independent films come out of Britain and stuff, and Japan and China and stuff, and they get made. Right. And they're usually the ones, you know, like Guy Ritchie. Everyone looks at him as this big famous filmmaker, but his little film was made for a million dollars, Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels. Right. And he said, "I hardly knew what I was doing when I was making it." That's what made it. It's mm -hmm. Robocop. You look at all of these Terminator. They're all little low budget independent films that started and became into the public consciousness. This is a running critique of Hollywood today that it is just mass manufacturing through the studio system, a bunch of established franchises, old franchises, let's reboot the 70s, the 80s, let's reboot Spider-Man 5,000 times. And it feels like although the cream of the crop in terms of creative talent is available and money is not an issue, yet is so bone dry in inspiration and originality and creating new stories that are relevant today. Do you think that that is entirely just driven by their own market forces and profit motives? Or is there something else missing here? Why can't they look back and see this little independent film was a raging success. Every time we give the audience something fresh and new, there's a chance it might actually take off. And we, we should do that as creatives. Yeah, well, it's it's um, you know they they Fox to give them their due do have their Fox Searchlight, and that's the only reason that Guillermo del Toro finally got hit. He was so worried about um, his new film, and that was done by them. He went and did it as the lowest budget he's had in years, and made it here in Canada in Hamilton. Um, this is for The Shape of Water? Yeah, Shape of okay. Water. This is right after Pacific Rim, which I believe was his biggest budget. That was the biggest budget ever, but it only made $90 million in America, and they deem it a complete failure. It made $600 million worldwide, Japan, everywhere else. That's a success. So it was deemed a failure in Hollywood. It's not a failure. 
Mm-hmm. I I went to see it and I thought it was great. It had it more in that enjoyable. film than most of the other blockbusters. Well, I, I just I love the problem solving approach in Pacific Rim. <clears throat> giant monsters from the sea are coming to attack us, so let's build giant robots to fight them. Right. The end. I, it was so simple. Yeah. And yet so enjoyable. Like I, yeah. you know, it was sort of a guilty pleasure for me. I'll, I'll admit. I agree. And even Lena, my wife, liked it. You know, and I, I, I said, just probably park your brain at the door. This is Japanese, <laughs> Japanese sure. style. What it is, and it, it was. It, there was more originality in that. See, and James Cameron <clears throat> came out a few months ago. Oh, when, sorry, a, a couple of years ago, when A Force Awakens came out, and James Cameron came out publicly and said, "Look." J.J. Um, Abrams is a friend of mine and I don't want to put him down because he's done a great job with this film but when I look at the six Star Wars that George made there's more originality in each one of those and he was pushing the limits and pushing and creating storytelling and I think that's true and George only got away with that because he financed every single film himself he never went to a studio, everything. He took a risk. And when, when we were doing Phantom Menace, I talked to Rick and George about it when I was directing Second Unit, and they said, you know, we think we'll be okay. We can cover our costs. George has put up $110 million of his own money to make this film. He didn't go to the studios. Mm-hmm. And we don't know. We don't know if this is going to work or not. <clears throat> and so that was a unique situation that has existed within the Hollywood system, if you like. And I guess George isn't Hollywood because he still lives in San Francisco and he kept out of it. Right. Um, and his compatriot Spielberg was hugely successful within the system. He has a plug on connection onto that cinema that just works in the world and it works with where... You know, unfortunately, you know, the, the the critical point for most studios is the 18 to 25-year-old male in America. And that's where their test scores come from. Why? I find that really interesting. You had mentioned that earlier, and I was, to be honest, surprised. 18 to 25-year-old males, albeit are an important demographic, but, you know, that same age range for girls are also uh, increasingly having higher disposable incomes, they tend to be more social in uh, sharing good and bad news and whatnot. And there's an entire industry of fashion and cosmetics and all of these other things that are targeted at them. So clearly there is a market there. Yeah. So if the the narrow band is 18 to 25-year-old males, and that's the key focus for, for Hollywood in this case, we're missing so much of the world in, in telling stories that are relevant for them. And, we, and we're also presuming that we know exactly what 18 to 25-year-old males want, which feels really presumptuous. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it, it's apparently breaking now, and Wonder Woman broke it. Um, but the, the, the studios, there's still this pervading attitude. You can see it all around. It's very hard to actually break. And there's, you know, we talked earlier about Black Panther, and it was right. okay. It wasn't strong as a film, I didn't think. Um, and it served it served its purpose to suddenly say, here, finally, all black people can be leads in cinemas. That has not changed anything. And, mm-hmm. I, and I would guarantee most of that audience were white. They were looking at this film, oh, this is different. Right. And it worked. And, and hallelujah that, 
you know, there's a huge audience and that is always ignored. And the Me Too thing now with women, it's become the latest thing. You know, now suddenly women are, are able to almost bankroll a film in Hollywood. It seems to me it's done on the lemming attitude. Everybody's having to do it now, so let's do it. Right. I don't think there's a core belief that they really th- believe in this. There's still so much of this whole attitude of it's the white male who matter. Yeah. And that's where our power is. And when you look at superhero movies, most of them are that target. And I don't think Hollywood is unique in this. This idea of diversity, uh, whether it's gender diversity or ethnic diversity or whatever, it's a very narrow understanding at a surface level of what diversity actually means. Yeah. And I believe in some senses the intent is good, but the people that are that is being forced upon within the system, they don't necessarily get it or care enough for it. I, I, I agree with you. I personally, I saw uh, Avengers Infinity War before I saw Black Panther. And again, Guilty Pleasures, I really enjoyed as sort of a Hollywood blockbuster. I, I enjoyed Infinity War quite a bit. I didn't enjoy Black Panther as much. I liked it, but it didn't, it underwhelmed me. I was telling you th- this in earlier, a friend of mine who's actually Nigerian and has been in Canada for a number of years, but he was born there. Uh, when he looked at Black Panther, he thought it was just kind of silly. He's like, this is not African culture, this fictional uh, caricature that is... It was a caricature Wakanda. and a cliche, both Lena and I right. thought that watching it. Yeah, and, and, and he said that himself. He just thought it was silly. And then he uh, saw you know, a bunch of... Uh, you know, a bunch of black people dressed in all these Wakandan outfits and getting excited about this. And I thought to himself, again, I think I'm coming from a perspective as, you know, uh, you know, as a South Asian man who's grown up, born and raised, you know, here in the West. And I haven't really ever seen myself in any consistent way represented. No. Um, uh, you know, even now, there's still a couple of token nods to it. So I put myself in the shoes of, you know, these you know, young or old black people who are dressing up as Wakandans. And I thought, you know what? They've always wanted to be able to dress up as some character, but they've had to be black Batman or black Catwoman right. or black Superman. They were never just whatever they were. And this is the first time they're getting to do that. And for them, many of the people in North America who have never been to Africa, Africa is this concept, but they don't know better than anyone else here what it really is. So it still had some meaning. And I thought that that was really powerful. But now that is one film that was a great success financially. But it doesn't necessarily completely shift the bar on its own. And it hasn't. I mean, there aren't any since. Yeah, I, they, all, they all raved about it in Hollywood and said, see, we do it, we're diversity, we do it, and mm-hmm. this is what we're doing. And it's made money, but uh, it hasn't really followed on. But it, again, it's fledgling, you know, always this stuff. It's, it's all a matter of education. It comes down to education, everything. That's where these great myths and stories educate you instinctively to Mm -hmm. think um, and to respond to your instinct and so you know it it, the the good thing with Black Panther it's a stepping stone up but it needs more now it needs it needs to go much further will that happen or not who knows you know there are some very interesting black filmmakers now um, coming out and doing things but you know the first one was um, Steve McQueen with, and uh, what did he come out with? It's like a slave film, you know, right. and how awful whites were to to the blacks, which is true, and it has stories that had to be told. But 
and it won Oscars and it won all of that stuff, but what impact did it have? I still see racism as an inherent core in America. Mm -hmm. It kind of brings a question. This is something I wanted to really explore with you. The world is polarized. It is, in many respects, still batshit crazy. By some metrics, it's the most peaceful the world has ever been. It's the most collaborative, certainly compared to you know when 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 you were born and and what you grew up in the aftermath of the war. The world is a much better place in many regards, but it's still very clearly uh, tribal in the negative sense. It's very racist. It's prejudiced, and it's not even just a phenomena unique to white people and the oppression of others. There is a level of insanity and oppression and prejudice in every part of the world. There's no country that's free of it. And it seems to be either it's growing in the last few years or it's just becoming more obvious because social media has allowed it to run amok. So what is the, is there a responsibility that creatives, that musicians, filmmakers have in trying to either reflect what the world is or in trying to shape it for a better or worse tomorrow. Do you feel that there's some sense of responsibility there? Yeah, 100%. I think, you know, as I said, it's all education in the end of the day and it's education that is of, you know, and it, and it really it comes down how how do you, you know, myth and legend were the things that always did it. Now it's got very difficult. Social media has given a voice to so many negative people. And at the same time, it has to be overridden by the positive. And um, it it's, there is, I don't know why there's a human propensity to follow the negative generally in people. And it takes, you know, when you look at the the great stories of spiritual enlightenment, it usually happens when I call it humans hitting a brick wall. Right. There's an emotional tragedy that happens or a shock. Something happens that wakes them up. Right. So how do we create <laughs> a global brick wall that everyone smashes into and wakes up and thinks, why are we fighting? Why are we doing all this negatives? Why are we so damning on everybody else? Why, why, why? That process, um, it's probably... I don't know if it's worse now or not. You know, social. You know, the world is now united. Social media, news, mm -hmm. everything. We know everywhere. Even Americans now know where India yeah. is. They, they or connected, know, if not they united. Connect. Yeah. So, um, you know, nation-wise, I mean, unfortunately, you know, I I didn't want to bring this up, but Trump personifies the bully nature of negativity, and he's using this huge resources of this country to do it and when you look at and there's not an accident that he's voted in the people voted him and they still will vote him in again right. there's a majority of them and that is the unspoken opinions of over 50 percent of that country um right. so you you know, he, he's mouthing what people really think, and it's very dangerous. Well, I'm not a conspiracy theorist by any means, and I don't believe that there is a room somewhere on a an island in the South Pacific where a bunch of evil geniuses are you know, yeah. plotting out domination no. of the world. No. But I do believe there are a handful of people 
on the planet who have the reins of power and have acquired those reins of power through all sorts of nefarious means. And the reason that we have someone like Trump, and I think Trump is just a puppet in all of this. He is one character, but without a supporting cast behind him, behind the scenes, he wouldn't be where he is today. Yeah. And it's, it's, it goes the same for the way that Brexit took place. It goes, the, you know, the, even the rise of nationalism uh, in, in India, which I, I find just bizarre, yes. um, or you know, parts of Western Europe. At the end of the day, I believe strongly that there is a almost accidental organization and uh, collaboration among certain people to keep people living in fear. And without people yes. living in fear, I believe that capitalism makes sense, but capitalism unchecked doesn't because there is not a free market in the world right. today. And when you need to create a market by creating fear or uncertainty, and this becomes the reason that we can boost our defense budget or becomes right. the reason to sell makeup or this particular fashion accessory uh, to a young, impressionable girl, you're essentially creating a delta, a negative delta between that person's sense of self and what they believe they should be. And in doing that, in, in closing that gap is where the money is spent. And, and I believe that you need to keep a population dumb, uninformed, distracted. And that isn't by accident. The defunding of public education, the uh, stripping away of the, many of the social uh, welfare and mechanisms in Britain uh, since the Thatcher years, all of this is very much, a, I think, a, it's a deliberate attempt at keeping people dumb and distracted. Yeah. And when they're dumb and distracted, they don't know how to vote, even if they do go out and vote at all. They don't know how to act in their own self-interest or yeah. their best interest because no, they don't know what the interest is. Yeah. No, it's control, and that's, you know, the, it, that's how a lot of the religions that were created uh, is, is over control. And, right. You know, it led me through being, you know, going to church every Sunday with my family because I had to, and I liked the church. It was very ancient churches, but I never understood what this was about and uh, fire and brimstone, you know, and mm -hmm. crusades and all of this stuff. Exciting as it was to read the stories, what the core was never registered to me. And that that's led through, you know, it, so I, I went off and studied Buddhism deeply and, um, and Sufism. And I, I learned, and thank God there's been, you know, throughout there's a Gandhi came up and changed, the world at a certain point and there are these people arise christ came out and arose in a mm -hmm. very violent time and um so whether they're mythic heroes or heroes they are something to aspire to right that brings a balance to the negative but you're right you know the, the whole fear was russia or oh, and then you know when it all came to light of the cold war russia was a broke poor country and now putin is now smarter than every other world leader and playing the Ruthlessly world like chess and playing the world like chess and doing back to them what was done to Russia for all these years. And it's all fear. It's all based again on fear. It's like, oh, we're afraid of the Russians are going to come and take us. Oh, we're afraid of the Chinese. What are they doing what? now? Oh, we're afraid of the everybody. Everything is fear. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, people believe that because they're all afraid. Well, it's also the only thing up for offer in many cases. Yeah. Flip, um, flip channels for anyone who's still, uh, you know, watching cable TV. Between shootings, between Trump, yeah. between <clears throat> political uh, bipartisanship, 
or the imminent threat of ISIS or whatnot. Like there is fear and doom. And yet we are capable of incredible acts of absolute stupidity. I think humanity is unbelievably dumb at points. And yet we are capable of such incredible acts of kindness and love and, and heroics. But those things based on the system that's been architected don't sell. They don't sell, you know, print newspapers. They don't get you clicks online and whatnot. Um, unless it just happens to have a nice shtick or angle about it. So if the only thing that you've ever seen in your entire life, and I, I feel for, you know, folks who are, you know, in their, their 20s, you know, maybe even like early 30s today, for much of their life, they will have seen that climate change is happening. We could be on the brink of nuclear war. Um, yeah. You know, AI is going to take away all of your jobs, all of this thing. So it's never really been a great period of, hey, you know what, let's come together as a civilization and just figure this out. Yeah, and I I lived through that moment in London in the 60s, which was everything was possible and all there was was love in the air. That was everything that was going on, you know. Look at it, me, I was reading Tagore and um, Mm -hmm. Jung, who I particularly went for, Jung and not Freud, but Jung, and I, sure. you know, I, it was reading deeply all of this stuff, everything. I was all the great poets, everything. I was reading and understanding, and we all were. The whole city was full, and everyone smoking grass, and the, the, there was the Beatles coming out with incredible love songs, and mm-hmm. even the Rolling Stones. I mean, but they were they were bands, music, films coming out all the time that in Britain particularly, and it happened in America. I mean, there's, you know, if you're going to San Francisco, look, wear flowers in your hair, it became the number one huge song. There was an atmosphere at that point, and it got very quickly shut down. And I think when you look at it, the danger, you know, Thatcher shut it down. Mm -hmm. Um, America shut it down. Um, It was too dangerous because people were thinking and they were... They were free, and you they can't were thinking. Control the people who think. No, and it's never come back. You know, my son, who's now thirty-five, Thomas, when he was growing up, and I mean, when I pulled out, I gave the music lessons going to school, and we went right from blues up through Rolling Stones, everything mm-hmm. all the way through. And then when I pulled out my Hendrix album one day and played it to him and the Beatles, he just said, "Yeah, you know, I was born in the wrong time." Because we've got boy bands. Yeah, I, I hear that a lot. You know, you, you went to see Hendrix, you saw the Stones, you saw the Beatles, you saw Cream, you saw Pink Floyd. There were no fights. Yeah, Everyone was there. We were all, like, embracing what was going on and, and even the Who playing. There weren't fights. And then we let, we let someone or... A, a number of folks behind the scenes plant a seed of complacency, which has been just yeah. sort of spreading ever since. Yeah, it, it would seem. I, you and I both have young sons at this point. They share the same name. I'm curious to know. You know, now you're sort of second wave as a father. You're having both grown children and, and a young son, raising them at two different times. And also, when you look out at the world twenty, thirty years from now. How do you think this plays out, and what can we do about it? It's a very tough one, actually. I know, you know, I'm reading to Arjun every night, and I'm reading him the, the books that I read my others and I had when I was young. I've got the original Thomas the Tank Engine oh, books, wonderful. you know, and I've got Far Away Tree, and I'm reading him, um, 
I'm reading him stories that are kind of they they all have the right kind of thing behind them at a young age but you know at the same time as you know I don't watch television I'm watching Paw Patrol and I'm watching <laughs> Ninjas and I'm watching I can Paw- never get that damn Paw Patrol theme <laughs> out of my head I need an exorcism if you've got a secret please let me yeah. know no I can't but I, I watch it and you know it's okay they're pups helping people and they do good so I don't mind it they, they've hit a nerve mm-hmm. with children which is good it's because a lot of the other stuff is just violence so where does that change actually that's an interesting point I'm only realizing now for some period of time we still teach children about being kind saying your pleases and thank yeah. yous uh, the world is one let's explore it and then it feels like there's this period of age where if you were to watch, you know, television programming or literature or whatnot, things start to get a little bit darker. Why do you think that is? Like, why can't we be sharing the same message, albeit not through an adult Paw Patrol, but why can't we be sharing that same message for grown-ups? Yeah, and no, I agree. And I guess it's peer pressure, you know, people, you know, you, you know, constantly, and I'm, it, it's, hard it's rare you find friends you can actually talk to and I don't you know and I most of the people at school and things I talk to them but I can't share what I feel and um there's a you know and I look at them here and the obsession is going to the ball games here or um all of that drinking beers and going there and that's all they talk about it's most of the people distracted. and I'm just quiet in the corner right. and it's it's a kind of excuse for getting through without having to think much. Um, and they all follow and they go to the blockbusters and then they all talk about how great it was or how terrible it was. You rarely get people giving an opinion saying, well, you know, that was not very interesting, that one, but I understand why it's making a lot of money. No, it's all, you know, and I can only relate the story. My manager in, in Hollywood, I would argue with him about this, and I, I was in the cinemas and watched the first trailer ever for Lord of the Rings, and I came out and said, wow, you wait and see, this is amazing what I saw. Oh, that's we know, all of us, that's going to bankrupt the two studios. No one's going to see people on horses. You don't understand. They're going to go bust. Everyone I talked to said the same. The day after it broke and was a hit, have you seen Lord of the Rings? It's fantastic. Oh, my God, right. you've got to yeah, see this They'll change their tune like that. So this. Again, it comes down to this whole thing, you know, I'm blessed I had some form of, you know, and there's another side to my story because I was growing up with a father who really was never unkind, but he never spoke to us. And through his own education, he was blocked completely emotionally. And my Mm -hmm. mother was completely blocked emotionally. And there was locked doors in the house. And... I, when you have children, particularly when Thomas was born, you get so tired in the <laughs> first few months. And what comes out is not what you were told and not what you had read. It's what you absorb from the parents. And I noticed my father's voice was coming out. And I said, you know what? I'm not going to do this. I took a conscious effort. And... I, destiny whatever I remember I was so blocked off and I got hemorrhoids so badly I wouldn't deal with it and they were so bad I finally went to the doctor and he said next week you're in you're having these operated 
this is really bad. And I walked home and thought, no, they'll just come back. This isn't the way. It was literally walking home from the doctors. And when um, my daughter was born, we had I'd found a um, the French doctor who did the water birthing. We, we, she was born like that. Right. And because of that, there was a healer who gave baby massages, which was very unusual in Britain incredibly unusual a crew of six they would massage the babies my wife actually then said why don't you go and see Stephen and I did Stephen was a frustrated musician who wanted to be a pop star but he had this gift he'd studied with the Indians I walked into his place and there was beautiful music playing and incense and everything and he said what is it and I told him and he said let's go to the mirror and he said look at your mouth it's like an asshole see how tight it is and he said, no, I want you to smile. And I smiled. And he said, that's the goal. And then he put me through a healing session. And I walked out of there and I floated. I thought, wow, this is it. And it lasted 10 minutes. And I thought, okay, I've got to go deeper. So I right. studied with him a long time. And I, I found healers and things that changed my life. And I, I had people come into my life who were immensely powerful. And I had at one point, I'd actually kind of fall in what you call really deeply in love in Mexico and this woman was killed and um, I went through a nine month grieving and at that point there was a um, Canadian actually she was a model who got this power she she had bolts of lightning come out of her she was extraordinary and she got recognized in the street by an old Russian woman who stopped her and said you're very powerful I have to train you and she trained her and uh, when, and she was kind of healing people, not knowing what she was doing. And she, do you know Carlos Castaneda? No. Carlos Castaneda was a Peruvian who studied mythology and went to Mexico and was discovered to have the two PowerPoints inside that the, all the shaman have. And he was quite arrogant, and they put him through a process, and he wrote about 20 books on his journey through. They were in the 60s, 70s, these were the Bibles everybody read. And, and unfortunately, the pop people took it because they broke him with drugs mm-hmm. in Mexico. Um, and he time-traveled, and... He developed how to time travel. The Art of Dreaming is one of his books that is extraordinary, how he trains to use the dreams at night to time travel. And they used to do it with two of them, and they go to the same place and walk around. And she'd met him. He was a recluse because he hated being connected with drugs. Mm -hmm. Um, That's what everyone took, that it was the psychedelic drugs that was broken but it wasn't that it was breaking his ego right and um he uh he went reclusive he came out after 20 years and gave a lecture and this healer and her husband who was an algerian sculptor he always felt he was the intelligent one she was kind of instinctive and could go in at start and he would take over and they had they saw this advert for this four lectures and they argued. He was saying, you go, because he wanted her to go, and then he would take it over. And she said, no, no, you go then. And they argued. She won. 
and went. And this first lecture, Carlos Castaneda came out and said, I know you're all wondering why I'm here, why I've come out of seclusion. And this was like everyone, Deepak Chopra, Demi Moore, I mean, everyone was there. It was that big. And mm -hmm. Jane Lee was sitting there and he said, I've come out because there's someone in this room who I need to identify with. And Jane Lee was looking around thinking, well, it's probably Demi Moore, it's Deepak Chopra, all these people and everything. On the fourth lecture they called witches who worked for him, came down to Jane Lee and said, Carlos is going to do yoga. We want to invite you to come with us. And it was her he chose. Mm. And her husband, it only came out later, used to beat her up and things like that. And it only came out, she'd hidden it all because she wanted the husband to go. And he said, no, your husband's too bad energy. And he said to her, this is part of my journey, I'm telling you this. He said, it's taken me 21 years to learn the process of how to break the ego, how to become fully where I am and to learn the art of dream and, and to control. He said, I've got three years, I'm leaving the planet. He told her the date he was going to go. And he said, I can train you because you have the power. And mm -hmm. he trained her. Wow. And she was with him when he died. So... When I got back from Mexico after this woman had died, and I was like, it's the only time I've ever thought about death might be a viable way to get out of this pain. And she took me on four hours twice a week and put me through the entire healing journey. And that's what changed me. Incredible. At, at the end of it, she said to me, you're so open now, I'm going to have to spend the next few weeks putting guards around you because <laughs> you're going to live in hell like I do. And she would walk down the road, light bulbs would pop. I mean, she was just an ordinary person, but uh, and nothing ever worked. She said, these are spirits in my place. They break the, she's everything. Like an, she's like an EMP walking yeah. around, basically. Yeah, she was, yeah. I think she's lost it now. It's gone. But, I, you know, I helped her out a lot as well. Gratitude There's something in, you've kind of touched on it a bunch of times in there. I'm, I'm curious about this. I, I mean, having known you for a while, I, I know you as a gentleman in the truest sense, and as a, a very gentle person, a very gentle man, as a father, you know, nurturing and, and caring. And, you know, I try to be all of those things to, you know, both my, my son and daughter as well. And just this morning, I think you had shared a, a tweet about um, that TV host and actress, Padma Lakshmi, who had, yeah. she'd come out and she said yeah. she had been raped at 60. Yeah. I just, I just article that really, you know, upset me this morning about uh, a female officer at Division 51 in the Toronto Police Service who's come out, um, filed a, a case essentially against 51 Division of years of rampant sexual abuse, misogyny uh, at all levels, uh, you know, permeating the entire force and particularly her precinct. And I have this hypothesis that I wouldn't call original. Many people have been saying this, but... I believe that all people are broken to some extent. I believe men are particularly broken for a very specific set of reasons. And when you look at the violence perpetrated in the world, whether it's through religious-based terrorism or political terrorism or beating um, women or domestic abuse or even exploiting populations of impoverished people for corporate gain and dividends, those psychopathic behaviors are almost always perpetrated by men. And at some point, those men were boys, and they came from a mother's womb, and they went through a set of experiences. And I wonder, what is it that we do so wrong with raising boys and men 
and what can we do differently? I believe it's changing because I see it around me a lot with with friends who are just beautiful, loving people um, and great men. My own father was amazing. I, I can't thank him enough for for leading by example. But even now, my daughter hears in kindergarten when she was in kindergarten that you know there's certain things girls can't do. Girls don't know how to play with superheroes, or girls can't do this, can't do that, and they're hearing it from five year old boys. And whether those boys are picking it up at home or from the TV or in the schoolyard, somewhere the message that society is giving young boys about manning up, don't cry, don't be oversensitive, you have to control, you have to be the alpha dog, where do we begin? Yeah, it's education. I mean, even with Arjun now at school, you know, I was talking to him last night about it because his best friend punched him in the eye. And I said to him, well, look... You, you actually have to go to the teacher and report it and talk about it. You're not going to be condemned for being a telltale. It needs to be dealt with on the moment. Mm-hmm. And then if you're his best friend, why are you hitting him? Mm-hmm. Think about it. That's right. education to me. And it's not, so I don't, you know, what's the normal thing? Well, you've got to hit him back. We're going to teach you how to fight. It's not, it's education. And um, at the same time, because he is very sensitive and gentle, he's now doing taekwondo, which will give mm-hmm. him confidence. It's not to use. My other son got a black belt in karate because he was always small growing up, and I noticed the confidence it gave him not to go and fight. He didn't go out and smash people, but he had a belief in himself that mm-hmm. he could take care of himself if this happened. And right. I see the peer pressure all around with these friends of his. They're always always putting negatives into even Arjun's even thinking. Even at his age. At yeah. his age, at four and a half, five years old. And um, and with girls, it's far more difficult, you know. And it, it, it's, when I look at it, you know, I couldn't live in England anymore, Britain. And when I look at it, the women, instead of learning, they've taken power. I've watched over the last 20 years... The men are lost, you know, completely, because the women were now the higher percentage in universities getting out and getting results are women. What's sad in the majority in Britain, they've turned into the men they've despised for the last 50 years. And there's, you know, in the center of the metro stations, there was a huge three police women this huge biggest poster saying the incidence of alcoholic poisoning in women reached one and a half million dollars this was two one and a half million people this was two years ago and my son who's moved here now the elder one he said i can't take it anymore they're out in packs at night drunk fighting so uh. they didn't get it a lot do get it but generally and you look at the newspapers now instead of important news there's pictures of women lying in the road vomiting and saying oh it was new year's or the first day of university it was all pictures of women vomiting in the streets look at it the first day of being out at university that's news i think part of that problem is that the pursuit of equality has also made the assumption that whatever it is that men had and men were doing was actually the thing to aspire to, as yeah. opposed to that thing isn't broken in the first place. Yeah. I've seen in my own lifetime, my own career, like I find many of the women that I've worked with who have been managers and bosses have been 
incredibly compassionate and empathetic in many cases more so than some men. And I think it goes from individual to individual. We can't make sweeping statements. But I've also found a number of women over the years who have made it to higher level executive roles within organizations. When you deconstruct what's gotten them there, I don't know if it's just them as an individual or not, but many of their actions sound a lot like the alpha dog male that puts other people down, that is trying to fight for control, that has got this command and control, almost military approach. And the thing that we classically think of women as being empathetic and whatnot, and again, those are a sweeping generalization, but some of those elements don't come out. And at the same time, I don't blame them because the moment a woman who's running for office cries, now society still even today looks at her as weak. Yeah. You know, Justin Trudeau, like him or not for any of his policies, he was criticized for crying at his own father's funeral. Yeah. What kind of an, uh, a agree. world do we live in where you're criticizing something like yeah, that? I agree. It goes back a long way. You know, I, I did a huge study on Gilgamesh because want, we wanted to make the epic of Gilgamesh. And uh, I got an original script that I hated. And we started again and using all of this power of healing that I've gone through and everything and I looked at this story and didn't understand Ishtar who was the goddess of love who came down who is the the trigger point of everything in the story had three scenes in Gilgamesh and it didn't make sense to me so we constructed and I realized that Ishtar or Inanna her role was to break Gilgamesh's ego. That's what she came down to do, to teach him how to love so he Mm -hmm. would not abuse the women and the people and the power and everything around him. And that was the role. So that was the script we got written. And she was the powerhouse in it. And when I met, I went to several big kind of conventions and stuff, and we met um, one in Sweden and I just read a woman came out in America and she was the foremost um, authority on Gilgamesh she had said exactly the same thing and she said what you have to look at this was written it was stories that came actually from India they, they the Assyrians always argued with me but they all came sure. out of India all the same stories Gilgamesh the flood the all of those things were part of the ancient Indus Valley mm-hmm. they came through storytellers she said if you look at history around the time this 2600 BC whenever this came out that was the point when women were taken to be not literate they were to be in the kitchen and feed. Mm -hmm. So they took her out of the original epic because there was these storytellers for men. They could not have a woman who was offering love. This was the worst thing. So she was taken out. They gave her her own legend. There's the legend of Inanna in the clay tablets. But I felt vindicated because I thought, Mm -hmm. oh, she's the foremost authority. And then I put in certain things and keys. And I remember meeting the foremost authority in Sweden who asked to see me privately. He came to the hotel and he said, you've put things in here that nobody knows. Only I know because we know, a few of us know the secrets of Gilgamesh that are the uncovered secrets that we keep like that. How did you know? (laughs) I said, I just put them in from my instincts. And he said, you even changed the dove to a raven. 
And I said, yeah, because the raven is the bringer of knowledge. And he said, yeah, we know. And then there were things I put in it that he, he at the end of it, hugged me and said, well, you've understood somehow what this is all about. And I think it, from that time, if you look, that's Middle East. If you look mm -hmm. at the roles, even today, that's pervasive. Right. I made the film Nostradamus. And again, you know, you look at my work, most of them are... are heroic characters who stand against everybody against them around them mm -hmm. nostradamus in particular of course so i looked and studied him and i realized at the time the biggest influence was calvin calvin came out and wrote an alternative to the bible and his doctrine said people should stay where they are within their boundaries they shouldn't change even out in within the country women should not be allowed into universities women should be in the kitchen that's their place this is what stuck in the religious world mm -hmm. and he caused a huge shift in the movement that maybe was going another way to go back and that's still endemic in the world well and you fast forward to today when i find it incredibly both ironic and ridiculous at the same time, that there is still women for Trump. Yeah. That women who are, who today are the beneficiaries of millions of women who fought hard post-war to have their place in, in the workforce, to have a place outside of the home, to be able to vote, to do all of these things. That's been built on the sacrifice and sweat of millions of women in previous generations. Yeah. And now to come into a situation where you believe that it is okay for a man in a position of influence and authority, let alone the average guy walking down the street, but a position that, you know, the highest office in the land who should be a, uh, a beacon and, and a yes. representative, that you feel that it's okay for him to behave in a way that directly treats someone like you as a woman or your daughters or friends or sisters or cousins in that way, it makes me realize that there's almost a, an inception level concept that's at play here, that someone could be so against their own better judgment and their better, yeah. uh, you know, sort of what's best for them. It's endemic. I mean, I remember when Giles, my friend, Giles Nutkins, the DP, he did all of Deeper Meta's movies. Okay. He was doing um, Fire, Earth, Water. Right. Water. He called me and he said, Roger, we're in India. And that... Oh, when they had to get shut down. Yeah. And that film, as you know, is about the widows who About suffer. Sati. Yep. So he said, we've shut down. We're being stoned, all of us. We're in... We're in a compound here, locked away. And he said, you know the most shocking thing, Roger? Most of the people out there stoning us against us are women. Mm -hmm. So they've been indoctrinated by men. Yeah, absolutely. It doesn't come down to the way that women think. The indoctrination throughout history is men who've after control, you know, and... and it's very true. I mean, you know, there is a statement behind every great man stands a woman. It's true mm -hmm. throughout history, I, French history, everywhere, anything like that. There is, um, and thank God they're getting equality and getting, you know, they should have more than equality. And it, it the balance is, is in their hands is the balance now, which means that men throughout the universe are going to have to change their attitude and 
that's unlikely to happen because men don't want to lose that position. It's amazing. I, I don't know who is actually the original author of this quote, and I won't have it verbatim, but you know, to someone in a position of privilege, even equality feels like oppression. And I think that for men around the world, not just in any one country, not just in the West or the East, it is a weird time to realize that people of this gender have generally had it good or better at the expense of half of the population and things need to change. Like we need to step up, we need to change ourselves. And I think that's that's really important. But there's not a single place on the planet that is not still patriarchal. And the patriarchy cannot continue without the complicity and the support of women. Yeah. Like women are for all the talk about, you know, being fifty fifty in a in a relationship and as parents, and I think we do our level best, but there's still something intrinsically innate about being a mother. And if a mother is teaching her son that there are certain things he should or should not be doing or not correcting him when he goes and teases a girl or does a certain thing that seems innocent, you know, it's a boys will be boys thing. If she's not correcting him, that's just going to continue. And it also is upon us as men, as fathers and uncles and brothers and whatnot to also be the model for that. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 interesting. I've just suddenly thought of this. That, that another side to that, Joseph and Mary, the story of Joseph is completely missing in history. You don't... Mm -hmm. So right. I, when the script came to me and I made the film, low budget, but I made it because it's the story of Joseph. And I made it the story of him as a father and a family. And there was nothing about this amazing kid or anything like that. It was just a family struggling against horrible times of Caesar and um, mm -hmm. what was against them and the Romans, you know, and killing people and everything. It was a story about a family surviving, but also a family who knew they had a gifted child in their hands. And I made this story just to bring Joseph as a father because the... the influence at that time the mother mary you know the actress who played her i always said to her, i'm sorry but, you know mary's kind of untouchable there's not much i can do you're the virgin mother right yeah but we'll make you a human and they just talk about worrying about this child and worrying about what's going to happen and worrying about his future this is parents doing it together but the father in that case was probably more important joseph because at the times than the mother in shaping him through life. Um, and I we just I had a huge showing at Tyndale. We, we had to go to the religious um, uh, college here. And there was a massive talk afterwards. And they were all saying, wow, you've opened our eyes and you've changed things for us. And we're changing curriculums and we're looking at things a different way now. And I said, yeah, all I did was tell a story of a family. That's all I did. And this is what matters, you know. And it, going back to Arjun and your Arjun, it's like, for me, it's very difficult because you, you, all you can teach them is to follow their passions and to follow what they love and what, to, you know. I, I was reciting two days ago to Arjun. I said, you know, there's something that I grew up with. They used to tell me this silly rhyme that says, sticks and stones may hurt my bones, but names, um, how is it? Sticks and stones may hurt my, may bones, my but bones, but names, names will never hurt me. Will never hurt me. 
And I said, "There's the reason behind this is whatever people tell you and negatives and bad things, you don't ever believe it. Mm -hmm. You are you. You have your own power. You're yes. who you are in the world. And you have your own strength and you have to build on that. And um, so I think we have to teach the boys especially to be who they are. And it's, you know, all of us that, you know, growing up with the other two, my biggest worry was peer pressure. Because you get one kid on drugs, the whole lot are going to go. Yeah, one kid who's this, and that's what happens. And I grew up with that, and I I somehow made my way through it. And I have no friends from my school times, not one. I don't know anybody. Um, and I kind of worked my way through somehow with books. And again, it was heroes, stories, myths that, kept me alive kept mm -hmm. my spirit going not knowing that i was absorbing that i was just reading them and and thinking wow this is great i'd like to live in this um so it's getting worse and worse now it's getting harder and harder because of social media because this you know having my two when i had to move to america i notice with my daughter who's very smart and and I won't call her left wing, but she's very committed to, you know, she was marching in, in when Brexit came about and said, this is our country, we're against this, we don't want this. She was marching quite mm -hmm. rightly. Um, I noticed in L.A. at eight years old, she was becoming a complete mull airhead and it was pure peer pressure. And we got her out. I said, we're getting out of here. And we got back to London, got them into the French Lisa. And she, you know, she's done business in French. She's trilingual. She's smart as hell. Wow. And that was the pervading atmosphere around her that led yeah. her to a path that she would have grown up. Women, they're actually as capable, if not more capable than men. But I think someone realizes that and doesn't want the balance to shift. And so let's keep feeding them this drivel. Let's let nine-year-old girls in school yards worry more about hair and makeup and who's dating who than about science or chemistry. Yep. So, no, it's it's going on now in the world with Megan and Harry. Megan oh, is absolutely. every day is what she's wearing and they sell out within a day. Everything <laughs> and the hair. And that's all I see on the news. I look in London and it's all what she's wearing, what she was doing. There's nothing about, you know, and occasionally there's something about, well, they've gone to schools to help or they're doing something or other mm -hmm. or they're ambassadors around the world. And, you know, they do. Charles has done a phenomenal job and he's always laughed at, but he he started High Grove Farms. He's created the first ecologically working high grove with a huge number of acres they're now you know they provide their own ecosystem has gone back to as it was everything they have farmers wow. from all over the world coming in to educate them on how to do it they grew the wheat that was the oldest wheat in the world thinking well it's that they thought it was just for the taste suddenly they found out the thatchers who do all the thatched roost couldn't get that anymore they now have a huge industry they're supplying all of them Incredible. with the proper old thatch and the birds came back and the insects everything you know and he's he's got a um the, the whole organic line that he does are really good and they're working 
Um, you know, and they used to laugh at him. Oh, Charles is out there talking to trees again. You know, and it was the big news. Like, well, that's this also is, the thing. This is the perpetuation of wow. Well, it's also the perpetuation and ridicule of intelligence. Yeah, I'd read an article basically blamed the the sitcom Friends as the beginning of the end of uh, you know intelligence. Because if you look at the dynamics and the characters, Ross, as a paleontologist, is always getting carried away. And, and, and one could say even nerding out on things, matters of history or science or paleontology and whatnot. And everyone else just basically dismisses him within the group. Right. And if you think about that, if you are, I would imagine in many circles, even today in schoolyards, if you are a bright, intelligent young man who's articulate and interested in things that are not just sports or not just you know drinking or whatever you probably would get shut down by a number of people and either will play to that narrative and stop sharing those things or you will find yourself as a little bit of a recluse we should be celebrating intelligence yeah. and knowledge and history yeah. <clears throat> regardless of who it's it's coming from it's funny that you mentioned the whole you know the public the press is obsessed with uh megan and harry and what she's wearing i won't get all the facts right but about a year ago i read an article about the mayor of coquitlam bc he ran an experiment in which for either a period of 12 months or 18 months, I can't remember the exact number, he wore the exact same suit every single day that he was at City Hall. And no one noticed. And he was basically running this experiment to see when women are in the public eye, when they're politicians in particular, no matter who you are, there's a critique of their fashion sense and what yeah. they're wearing. God forbid a woman wears the same outfit in two consecutive Twice. months. yeah. So he worked for a, a, some ridiculous amount of time, and it wasn't until some woman in the council said, hey, that suit looks a lot like this other councillor's suit, that he finally just, he couldn't keep it in anymore. He's like, I've been wearing the same damn thing for months, and thank you for finally even mentioning it. This standard that we have for men and women is just so True. unbelievably distinct and separate, right? Like, And so he's going about his business as mayor, and someone else uh -huh. who's mayor or in city council has to really worry about what she's wearing every day. Like, that's just ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, I come back down to Star Wars, you know, with, with what George has given the world in, you know, Obi-Wan Kenobi. These are, mm -hmm. these are examples of how people should be. And, you know, the, 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 Han Solo character who is a bit of a brigand and a gambler and everything, but he has a heart of gold. You know, he comes in and, and helps at the end. And Luke, who's fighting his way and going on his instinct when everybody's aunt and uncle are telling him, no, you've got to stay a farm boy. You know, you've got to mm -hmm. be safe. You've got to go to college and everything. He's saying, no, no, there's something beyond this. Right. There's a yearning inside me and I've got to follow it. And he does. And Princess Leia, who's following her own fight against evil that which is the corruption and the standardization of everything she's on her own as a rebel so maybe those are the ways that are the big educators for the planet and mm -hmm. will we get any more i don't know probably not i mean this you know the and i'm with all the fans this last one that was made the last jedi this guy threw it all away and he didn't understand 
one thing about what George had done, and, and I could see on purpose, he, I think he thought, you know what, like the lightsaber, what, what would happen? I know what, no one's going to suspect. I'll throw it over the shoulder and get rid of it. And what would Yoda do? He'll burn all the books and the trees, mm -hmm. it, uh, books that are the libraries. He did everything to create an instant impact of doing the opposite of what people think without thinking about what he was doing. And I, I agree with all the fans that it's sad because he's a product of an American system. Right. And JJ did a very good job. JJ had to give back to the fans what Star Wars was, and he did it. He put that back in place. He couldn't be very original. He took the first film and redid it. Right. Um, but in new clothing, and it worked. It was I loved it. It was right. great. And hopefully he'll bring this, because it's the end of the saga now. It's a Skywalker family it's a dynasty that is fighting the bad forces. Right. So hopefully he'll bring that to a conclusion which will satisfy everybody and educate. You know, when I, I would read science fiction, I read the great writers. There's incredible right. stuff, and it's it's very... You know, William Gibson invented the internet on his books. There's, mm -hmm. you know, look at 2001, Arthur Miller. I yeah. mean, all of these great writers. I would read all of those. I wasn't reading junk. It, at dinners, I would say I'm reading this, and I, all I got was, well, it's not really Shakespeare, is it? I got so put down for it. And making the film, and I analysed again all of this in, in the book, George was a young American, so he had ticks against him, because at that stage, American culture was just the lowest ebb in Britain, you couldn't mention it. Maybe Westerns we right. thought of, but that was it. It was nothing. He was young. Yeah. <laughs> he couldn't get anything without education of Shakespeare and all of this stuff. Right. And he was doing a children's story for science fiction. You know, all the ticks were against him right from the start. And... I noticed that the supercilious attitude of the first ADs. You know, what I was standing next to George when he actually said, what does the little squirt want now? That was to George wow. Lucas, the director. And I watched George. He went red, swallowed it, and got on with his work. He was a big lesson for me. You don't take any notice yeah. of this stuff. This is bigger than, than It's than bigger. Yeah. And after Phantom Menace, I spoke to George because I said, how do you feel? They're calling you a racist. If you're anything but a racist, you're that. And he said, Roger, I never read anything because if you read, if it's good, your ego gets fluffed. If it's bad, you feel terrible. I just live my life and work. I don't take notice. wise words. And that's what goes to the core of all of this, what we're talking about. You have to believe in yourself. And that's the hardest thing, I think, to teach our children. And that's what we have to teach them. And that the good that is there to always embrace that because it's always going to come at them. You know, and uh, uh, the other book, The Road Less Traveled, was the other big book in the 80s of, of the New Age movement. He opens it by saying, the road you travel is really hard. If you don't want to accept this statement, please don't read this book. That's a good caveat. And uh, yeah. that's, yeah. And so, you know, all of that, <clears throat> that, that movement in the U age. And then I, I, I very took a huge amount kind of answering this. I, I told you before, I, I never understood 
and no one's ever answered this to me, of the ancient legends and myths, if these ancients knew what they were doing in telling the great Mabharata stories of the Indian legends, particularly even the other legends that have come from Asia everywhere, China, whether they knew they were creating a story with keys in it for us, if this was just an inherent kind of thing they did. There was a book came out... Um, called Iron John and at the time that Germaine Career and all the big women were pioneering feminism and they were touring America and the writer of Iron John was with Germaine Greer and the others on this lecture and he said after a few lectures it dawned on me that I was looking at all the men were all celebrating their feminine side then that's what they Mm -hmm. were all doing and he said i was looking and talking to dead men they were all dead they weren't thinking them right they're who they were so he wrote iron john and iron john is a famous 2000 year old german fairy story and get this book and read it he analyzed what the story is about and there are keys in there that are so clear when you read it and you read his experience because the, the the prince escaped from the palace one day and his golden ball dropped into a pond and a frog told him, you've got to swim to the bottom and he swam to the bottom and he again through the mud and he's digging down to get it and he finds a wild man and he gets this wild man and takes it back to the palace who they all run in fear and they lock him up. Mm-hmm. So the wild man's locked up. And the key is held by his mother under her pillow. And he has to st- he steals the key at some point and unlocks the wild man. Now, what does this tell you? Right. This is the instinct of who he is as a male. Mm-hmm. And he had to steal that from his mother and take it to Amazing. embrace what, his own symbolism. symbolism of his manhood. It's the most brilliant book. It's called Iron John. It's probably still okay. around. Definitely need to add that to my and, list. Uh, when you it opens your eyes to what these fairy stories are mm-hmm. and these are what's important you know and we don't get those anymore they're not there anymore you know kids now how many people are reading at night to their children they're watching cartoons and you know a lot of them american i particularly i voiced this for the last 10 years i look at american children they're watching very violent cartoons even at 3 years old Whereas I was reading stories, and it's, it's in also Europe. senseless violence that doesn't have a doesn't real purpose behind it or a rationale behind it. It's just yeah. it's just violence, yeah. gratuitously. Yeah. So, and I notice, you know, with Arjun, like he loves Kokoyo, mm-hmm. and he loves Paw Patrol, and he loves these are the things. So I know inside he's he's okay. He's yeah. got that sensitive spirit. He's not. He's not. You know, and he shies away from some of the stuff. Right. Um, so that'll come because the peer pressure, because that's what a lot of the kids at school right. are into. They're fighting and, you know. So I'm just very grateful. Thank you for making no, this time. No, it's good. For, you know, it's, I, I feel like we could go on for hours yeah, and hours. And there's actually a number of other topics <laughs> I'd love to cover. So yeah. I would love to have you back. Sure. I, I want to talk about dystopia and film and a number of other things. But, yes. you know, before we kind of close out, where uh, where can people find out more about you and what you're up to? I know that you've got a, a documentary in the works. Uh, what should people look out for and where can they find out more about you? Well, now... and 
it all comes back to the same story. So um, after I, you know, having Star Wars and Alien and Life of Brian, I'd got a certain point and I only wanted to try to be a filmmaker and tell stories, whatever I was doing. So I broke the process because I'd seen people couldn't survive because again, and the whole industry, except for two people, were telling me to stay as an art director, not to be a filmmaker. Everybody, even David Putnam, who was the head of the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And so I broke and I, I applied to National Film School and went back to film school. And while I was there, so I had somewhere to go and it happened. I was broke. We had no money left. And I'd written Black Angel as a short film that I wanted to make. Right. And I was being offered to design Conan well if there's ever a film I wanted to go and do it was Conan and I kept saying no I thought no I've got to make this Black Angel and I kept and the more money they kept offering me every time I turned it down Hollywood <laughs> I was getting offered more money and it was with Ron Cobb to co-design right and I loved Conan that was the real heart of a hero story sure. it was great and the way it was I wanted to do it but I turned it down and so Black Angel got made by accident because um, I was watching Bill Rowe was the greatest sound mixer of the era he did all of Kubrick's films mm -hmm. Ridley was doing Alien with Bill okay and so I called Ridley and I went up and sat every day because it's the best way to learn is to sure. watch yeah. and I'm watching and the head of Fox came sorry this is a bit long-winded but the head of Fox came and said what are you doing and I said I've written this film that I want to make and it's basically I'm trying to be Kurosawa in Scotland and uh, I can't afford to make it at the film school. The grants just won't do it. I want to do it in CinemaScope. And he said, send it to me. And I did. And he called me the next day and said, this is really interesting. He said, we, we put out a short film with Star Wars that George hated and felt it alienated the audience. And there's a government grant of £25,000 available to make a short film as long as a major film will connect it. Because then we didn't have ah, adverts. Okay. And he said, would you mind if I send it to George? We've only got a week left and we've picked two, but we're not actually sure about them. Can I send it to George? And I thought, well, yeah, I didn't even know this connection, anything. And next day he came back. George says, Roger's to make his film. No one's to touch it. Let him make the film he wants. I'm the first person to see it. Let him finish it. Do what he wants. Unbelievable. Wow. And that's George. And it was a thank you for standing by his side. But he also recognized it was a mythic thing. Mm -hmm. Now, I didn't fully know what I was doing when I'd written this myth and I I loved Tarkovsky Tarkovsky's films the only way to understand is that you have to let go and let it absorb into your subconscious they're not stories that connect to the here and Stalker's still one of my all-time favorite films that he made and if you ever want to watch a film that is a lesson in how music is there's a 20-minute sequence in there, which is what it's all about. It's extraordinary. And so I got to make it, and I'm in Scotland, and I realised I had £25,000, and I had horses and knights, and I had no money and cinemascope, and they gave me all the short ends of film off Empire Strikes Back, so I had bits of film to make it with, and I did it in seven days, and I couldn't really do much with the story. I had to do it like a, I thought if it's a myth, it can be connecting to the subconscious, so I sure. did it. It went out in 480 prints, and it was 
I was condemned by most of the British film industry because it was such a visual feast. No one had ever seen Scotland. No one had filmed it like I did, ever. I mean, this thing they talk about now, I got all this mysterious beauty of it, and it had some things that people just connected to. And at the same time, John Borman, bless him, who made Excalibur, who is still one of the British directors with real balls, excuse my French, but <laughs> he just took... And he showed the film, a short film, to his entire crew for Excalibur and said, this is what I want. And I'm going, John, I had £25,000 of short ends. I had a crew of 11 people, including my actors. I, you can't do that. And he said, it doesn't matter. He, the whole crew were there. He said, this is what I want. And, um, and Jeremy Thomas, who, who produced um, The Last Emperor, I mean, just amazing films, Jeremy. And they were behind me. David Putnam saw it and came out and said, I should stay an art director and walked away. I then had to have a belief inside myself and I was crushed. But I was getting letters from the audience saying, you've touched my soul. I don't know what you did with this film. And wow. we preferred this film to Star Wars. And I was getting these letters. This is my career, really. <laughs> Here. And um, so the film, I it, I met I made my first feature film, and I won't tell this whole story, but I was at Avoriaz with the whole studios against me, and it opened, and I was going on the bus up to Avoriaz when nobody wanted me there. Paramount didn't want me there, and they, they were forced to have me there because I found out on the bus going up that my film was chosen to open the Avoriaz Festival. It was a huge... It was wow. the most important festival of film and fantasy films at the time. Right. George Miller, the Mad Max director, was the president of the jury. Alan Pakula, I mean, uh, Polanski. I mean, everyone was there. This was big deal, right? It, my film opened the ceremony. I got off the bus. We were so late in the snow that I went on stage and gave a speech. Wow. And I came out and saw all these people, like, effective. George Miller came to me and said, I want you on a program with me. And he said, you know, I loved Black Angel. And I said, you did? And he said, yeah, Black Angel is... An, he started talking about it. I met him a year later. I was in Australia. He took me to lunch and he gave me Hero with a Thousand Faces by Joseph Campbell because I said, I don't know who Joseph Campbell was. And he said, read this book. You'll understand what you did. And I understood. And then mm. the negative got lost and there was a huge amount of pressure. Wired magazine came to me and said, we're doing a series of articles we call Forgotten Relics. Your film keeps coming up because George changed a scene in Empire Strikes Back. He slowed it down in the process that I did that no one had done before. And Excalibur and Highlander, they said it influenced cinema. We want to do an article on it. So they did. A few weeks later, I got a call from Universal Studios. Sorry, this is the story about oh, what no, I'm doing now. Is, so Universal Studios called me and said, are you Roger Christian? I said, yeah. And they said, did you make a film Black Angel? And I said, yes. And they said, how did you make it through? And I said, my company, my own company, because I got a grant from the government. It wasn't Lucas who financed it. He just um, attached it to Empire Strikes sure. Back. And I said, through Painted Lady. He said, oh, well, we've got your negative. And I what got up off the floor and said, what are you talking about? And he said, listen, I'm the archivist. Some reason. Sorry, how many years by now had it been? This took 25 years, and the neg was lost. I, my, my print 
I was doing commercials for Boss Films in America and they went bankrupt while I was making Nostradamus without phones, nothing in the far, you know, this country a year after the revolution. There was no communication, nothing. My neck, my my print got tossed out. The archivist on Lucasfilm, they tried for a year. They could not find it. We don't know what happened to it because... It, it had got shown, and George told me this, he showed it to Steven Spielberg, who said, this is the most enigmatic film I've ever seen. So, <laughs> and My. so this, there was the neg, and I said, well, and he said, yeah, you're B, because I've been ordered, we've got to get space. And he said, we've got all these negatives. I think when Rank Laboratories in London went bankrupt, they phoned around, and Universe said, well, we've got room, and all these negs were stored there. So I came okay. up early because I'm B, Black Angel. Right. So, And then five months later, I got another call out of the blue saying, hi, we're, my name's David Tanaka. You don't know me, but we're part of a restoration society in San Francisco, and we did one of the Star Wars. We do stuff like this. We have read about your film. We'd like to restore it for you. And I said, well thank you very much. And I, I explained the neg had just been found. They said, well, that's fantastic. We can get it put onto digital then. And I said, yeah, but quite honestly, I'm right in between films. I need money to do it and I can't afford it at the moment. What I was going to do was take it out when I've got another film and do a deal with a post-production house. And they said, no, Roger, this is a gift. We want to do it. Your film belongs in history. They restored it over the summer, frame by frame. I, I, listening to you speak, I can't help but think about, you know, Khalil Gibran's The, the Prophet, that yeah. the universe will conspire in your favor. Yeah. Like, I, I don't know where, where I completely stand on, you know, determinism versus free will and, and sort of the chaos of the universe. But all of these things aligning themselves in this way is just... It's very strange. It's amazing. I've been blessed. So they restored it. And then... I was kind of worried because I thought, you know what, this film is like 35 years old. It was raging in my brain how everyone in Britain had hated it and put me down for it. And they decided to show it as the closing film at the Mill Valley Film Festival. And Lena knows. I was umming and ahhing about going. She said, Roger, you're going. You've got to be there. You've got to right. go and support this. You've got to do it. And I was negative. And it was all this in my head, this stupid fear of like, oh, they're all going to hate me and they're going to say it's old and it's rubbish. And I went and I wasn't going to watch it. And then I went in the back and I thought, you know what? They've restored this frame by frame. I can't. I, it would be a completely rude. No. Have you seen it unrestored? I, no, they showed me. They showed me what they were doing, and it was fantastic. They put it as it was, as we shot it, you know. And it launched Roger Pratt, who the DP, was the first thing he'd ever shot in his life. He did a washing machine, but he looked after the Python's cameras. And Terry Gilliam said, "I think this kid's talented. You should use him." And mm -hmm. I did. And he's he became one of the biggest DPs in the world. He did Brazil. He did. I mean, amazing films. And while also re relating to all of this, while we're standing in Scotland, the three of us in freezing water trying to get this shot with the light because I had no lights and there was no exposure. Roger threw the meter away and just said, it looks great through camera. We're just going to shoot it. We're standing, the three of us. We discovered we're all Pisces. And then I discovered, I said, Roger, you know, I know you from somewhere in the past and I can't do it. And he said, you remember I did a huge late-night review 
based on Leonard Cohen's work because I loved him so much. And I made a dramatic series out of his songs. I had two actors and two, two, two women, two men acting. And I made a drama out of his book, Beautiful Losers, and the songs. And I made an evening drama out of it. This kid used to turn up on a Royal Enfield and did the lighting. And I, no I said I was doing way. innovative things. I wanted to show the rape of Indians by the white. And I did it as a mime. He, it was brilliant what he did. That was Roger. He said, that was me. You don't remember, do you? And I said, oh, my God, Roger. Anyway, I went to Mill Valley and it, I crept in the back and watched it from the back. And... Uh, it got very celebrated and, and a load of young students came to me and said, we do this film magazine, we want to interview you. And I said, no, on one condition. And they said, what? And I said, I interview you first. And I said, okay, this film is 35 years old. It's very slow. They said, listen, first thing is, if we'd made this for our thesis and turned it in, we would be told to cut it and make it faster paced. And they'd be wrong. He said that to me as a young kid. Mm -hmm. And then he said, finally, we had a chance to absorb deeply what this was all about and everything. So I got hugely encouraged by Incredible. this. A little kid turned up. He'd phoned me from Scotland and said, listen, are you going? And I said, yes, I'm going. He said, well, I'm, I've got the money together. I'm coming. And he did theater work and a bit of film work, right? Guy so he turned up and he said, I was six years old, not Sky, he was in another island. His dad took him to the cinema for the first time to see Star Wars. It was Empire Strikes Back. And he said, I saw this film and it went into my head and I can't get it out. And I never knew what it was. And it's plagued me ever since. And I've looked it up and I could never find it. I've just read there it was. I'm coming to prove it's real. So, wow, what do you even say to that? So then we became friends. You know, we, he came to dinner with us all, Lena and, right. I and, and, and John Rinser was there and everybody. And he said, listen, I've got a little offer for you. I've talked to Glasgow. They want to show it at the Glasgow Film Festival. And I've got a little grant available. You'd have to come in my car and we'll have to stay in little hotels. But I've arranged four, three cinemas around Scotland. If you want to do it, and I said, yeah, because everyone was telling me, oh, you've got to reshow it in London. And I said, no, because I know what's going to happen. All the critics are just going to hate me. Scotland felt they own because I really started the whole thing. Mm -hmm. And my second short film I made in Scotland won an Academy Award. So wow. I was helpful. In, that's the only Academy Award for directing or a film that Scotland ever won. So I kind of belong there. Mm -hmm. So I... I showed it at Glasgow, they put it in a 100-seat cinema, it ended in 400 seats, they sold so many, and we had a three-hour Q&A afterwards, This, which wow. was amazing about mythology and what I'd done and how we'd done it, all this stuff. One woman turned up, she said, can I say something? And I said, what? She said, I was the original producer of Game of Thrones. Nobody knows Game of Thrones pilot was made here in Glasgow. And she said, you started it all. This film started everything, all that's going on now. And I said, well, what happened? She said, Ireland came in and said, we'll give you all these incentives. We've got studios. We've got all of this. They move because Scotland has no studios. It's mm -hmm. been a fight here ever since. It's... Right. And then I took it round these cities and got 
BBC Online turned up at the screening 500,000 hits in seven days. Wow. On Black Angel. Incredible. And I did a, a, a an interview when I came back for Esquire magazine that went viral, went through Yahoo, went onto Reddit, went everywhere. And um, I went to London to meet with the company on another film and they said, look, we know this film you've come in, you're talking about doing, but we want to do a fantasy with you. For God's sake, that's what you do and you're not doing it and you should be doing it. This is where you belong. So what's this Black Angel? And I told them the story and I said, you know, originally I had this great story. They said, we're making Black Angel, that's it. So I started to develop it. That company fell out after a while and I've kept at it and kept at it and kept at it and... My German producer in Nostradamus came on board and he said, Roger, I need something for Berlin. And he said, you wrote the original, write it. And I said, yeah, but I don't know that I'm that good at screenwriting still. Roger, write it. So I wrote it. And then they all read it and it started to grow from there. I've now done 30 drafts on it. I've now got it where it should be. Wow. I now realise now, because I always was going to have a writer to come in and do it, but I've got there. And so... 30-something years later, that was the call I got today, we'll have the finance tomorrow from China, the full finance to make the movie. And I started with basically, originally I was going to do a bit in Scotland and Budapest and give it the same look. So I was before the Game of Thrones came so huge mm -hmm. five years ago, then I was looking at it. And actually going to India, I was I was the um, on the jury at the IFI, at the Goa Film Festival, right, okay. and Lena kept pushing me, saying, you know, you should make a film in India. You should do Black Angel in India. It will work. We met with so many producers. There's no funding for a foreign film. You right. can't do it. The, the only advice I did was, got, was put all the Bollywood stars in it, make it in Hindi, you'll get finance. And that, that yeah, didn't I don't work. think that was part of the plan. <laughs> but I had been around... Rajasthan twice on Gilgamesh and found incredible locations course, yeah. that no one's ever seen. So Beautiful. I kept thinking about this and I thought, you know what? I start in the hotlands. I'm going to do what we did on Star Wars. I'm going to change the whole feel of this film and make it into dusty, hot world like we did. And I filmed in Morocco so much. There's probably $10, $12 million worth of sets at my disposal there that are huge and locations and my friend is a producer who's brilliant and I thought you know what we're not going to have much money to make this I'll I'm going to go and change it and I'm going to Rajasthan for three or four days to film what no one's ever seen before and the way I'm going to do it so I pursued this you know when when Black Angel went out on YouTube. We did an Indiegogo campaign and they said, you've got to have it on YouTube. And I resisted because, all right, we took away the comments because I know these worms are going right, to be there attacking course. me yeah. all the time. So there's no comments. And I had to film a piece at the beginning saying, please put your clocks back 37 years because <laughs> this is what it was. But I'm now up to 700,000 hits, which is Amazing. not bad. Um, and so... I'm now doing, you know, the first film you make is always a passion project. And I, I didn't know what I was doing. I was trying to be Kurosawa. I was following myth. It is Arthurian. It had all of those things. But I didn't know Joseph Campbell. I didn't know what I was putting into it. Maybe I'm answering my own question here about whether these people knew what they were doing when they were 
doing the Ancient Perhaps, Legends. Yeah. And I thought a lot about it, and I realised as well, because it's about a knight who's, you know, the knights of old had one thing they had to do, was find a maiden and rescue them and fight a dragon. I couldn't afford to fight a dragon. I put a bat in it. And um, it was that I did it based on another great English writer who wrote um, a book called Pincher Martin, who was one of my favourites, where it was full circle. And so what you see is as he's drowning and dying, his ultimate, what his burning ambition and what he had to do and his code was to fight a maiden. That's what happens. He comes out in the strange lands and he fights death basically and loses in that film. And I realized making the book when I'm, because part of my thing about making the book, it's a mentoring book. It's not about what I did on star Wars. It, it, basically follows how we made everything and how we did it against all odds it's a it's a mentoring process for people but when analyzing i thought where do stories come from what is this all about and i realized that moment in mexico where i faced dying this was what inspired and there was a map of scotland on the wall for a, a, a picture a poster of scotland and this beauty of scotland and i was on the point of death it, and I it realized would seem that hope is very powerful, but ho- even hope needs a nudge every now and I then. I think there's something, yeah, that you know keys in within us, and I think that's answering the questions overall on this for you. I think every human being's responsibility is to open their instinct, and the only way to do that is mentoring. It's through, um, through meditation inward thinking going through peeling away the onion because Mm -hmm. growing up there's so many negatives come in at us and they become who we are and um john john bradshaw is to me is the young of the modern age he's an american psychologist who did a pbs 16 part series on dysfunction and he opens up every single one of the lectures by saying the saddest thing about the West is most people die without knowing who they really are. And that statement says it all to me, and it said it, it to does. me. So, you know, when you study enlightenment, which is what Christ was saying and Buddha was saying and the Hindu religions are saying, you know, with, look at the great, you know, fighting Arjun and mm-hmm. Arjun is the subconscious. Yeah. He had to fight his, his overcome self. his yeah. negative subconscious to get there. This story of Iron John is going down into the well. What is water? It's the subconscious, mm-hmm. Jonah and the whale. That's the, that's the symbol for the subconscious. That's what I put into Black Angel without knowing it because he goes in the water and drowns and that's the point where he comes out with his wild ambition story in the full circle so the you know that that's been a process i've continued to do and you know in some ways having this healing journey which was out of the worst emotional crisis for me in my life of losing somebody i learned to strip out everything everything and it's like an onion peeling it and it's the hardest thing to do mm-hmm. it's the most difficult thing to do and it's the thing we all hate doing is trying to go deeper inside you know and it, i've also 
you know, had a career that's up and down and things, and I've made films, and I, you know, Battlefield Earth is, was a millstone round my neck for 20 years, but we were doing an innovative film that was different to mm -hmm. people, and yet I got crushed, not because of the film, because of a hatred in America of Scientology and Germany, and it's just a religion. It's mm -hmm. like... But there's a huge fear, you know, and I won't go into that now, but there is a huge story behind why it's so feared, huge. And there's millionaires in America spending all their time going against this church. It's a church, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's people call it cults or whatever. It's not, you know. So I couldn't get over that. And you talk about the lemming belief when it opened in America, the, the main chief Los Angeles critic, these aren't stupid people, wrote that if you dared to go and see this film, the director's buried subliminal messages in it and you'll come out a Scientologist. And everyone believed it. And I wrote a very polite letter and he published it to give them their due on Monday and said, look, I, I'm living here. I thought we were in a democratic country. Everybody has the right to follow whatever gets them through in life. John Travolta faced his love of his life dying and fled to Mexico, and the only thing that made sense to him were the teachings of Scientology, and they got him through the worst period in his life, and he's adhered to it. And he's actually a very kind and gentle human being, and there's nothing wrong in that. And I said, you know, it's disparaging to all the people who work very hard on this film, Um and when a when a Tom Hanks movie comes out, nobody says, oh, it's a Baptist. I think he was Baptist. Nobody mm -hmm. says that. Or when another movie comes out, they say, well, this is a Catholic movie. This has got nothing to do with it. The fact he wrote it, he wrote it as a science fiction film. And I, I explained he was the most prolific pulp fiction author of ever. He wrote 48 pulp fiction novels. Right. So, and I said, it's got nothing to do with it. They published it and I, I got a lot of, people coming back saying that was one of the most dignified letters we've ever read because I didn't attack. and then But I did at the end. I said, but anyway, you got it wrong because I blurred subliminal messages from the popcorn companies so you'd eat more popcorn. <laughs> and kind of shamed them, right? you know, by doing that. But again, I've experienced the biggest wave of negativity that anyone could have. They destroyed everything by fear mm -hmm. by fear of what of some basic guy with a religion and a few people who belong to it so mm -hmm. what you know and um <clears throat> so you know i've had to survive as well and i made films i didn't want to make but i've got children i had to educate course, them yeah. i had to feed them and everything but i've always tried to do well and when i look at the work that they they're all pretty interesting and i've been independent and i've not joined the hollywood circus um i and i didn't really want to much as life would have been much easier, but I would have been soulless. Uh, but you, yeah, you seem to not want an easy life. You want an honest life. I want it right? honest. And now I'm making my passion project, you know, and it's not, I had to make the original story. I had to change it because then it was okay to be coming back from the Crusades. You can't say that anymore. That's mm -hmm. all gone. That's out of it. It's right. nothing to do with that. It is a fantasy and it is a hero's journey and it has a lot of what the hero's journey is all about and you know love conquers the hero at the end who was sent to war at six years old that's all he's ever known 
And I say that in the film. He's explaining it and saying, I've seen what men do to each other and I was determined to survive. And so, but the princess who's in, who's a renegade, is there to teach him and she opens him up how to love and that, that comes to marriage at the end. So I've got the core values in there and it's kind of my epic passion project. So this and is I, I can't go anywhere else to finance it, but you know, we were getting financing through Ukraine and through China and China are doing it now. So, mm -hmm. and I have to do a sequel as well for them. So, you know, patience is a virtue. Of course. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you know, I mean, as cliched as it, as it sounds, it's every one of those experiences in, in your life will somehow, some way make their way into this story. They have. And that is, that is incredible. They're all in there. Everything. Yeah. Roger, I mean, this humbled beyond belief. Uh, I, I'm, I'm surprised fun. I'm actually still like keeping it together because I'm, I'm so just excited and appreciative of your time. Not at all. No, Would it's good for me. Would love to have you back. Yeah, I'll um, come back because I'm going to do an audio book of the of, of Cinema Alchemist. I want to do that. Everyone you know, will listen to it in cars and things, and I want to do it because it, it is a mentoring for young filmmakers. Well, when filmmakers. we have self-driving cars, uh, yeah. we need something to yeah. do or listen to. Yeah, exactly. So, so well, Roger, thank you so much for being here today and uh, look forward to continuing this conversation and just best wishes for every conceivable project that you have lined up. Very good. Thank you. If you'd like to support the Awoken Word podcast, there are many ways you can do it. You can subscribe in your app of choice. We're on iTunes. Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or TuneIn, for example. The biggest thing that you can do is rate this podcast and leave your review in iTunes or wherever you listen to it. You can also talk about this podcast, its guests, or the ideas shared on it in your own podcasts. If you find benefit in this show, tell your friends, tell your family, and even more importantly, tell your enemies. They'll appreciate it too. And of course, you can also follow us on social media, particularly on Twitter. Our handle there is at Awoken Word, on Instagram as at Awoken Word Podcast, or on our Facebook page. Thank you. Your support is greatly appreciated.